and welcome to episode 84 of Random Encounter, the RPG Fan Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Steinman, Pale Robbie on the boards. Joining me today, we have the man who's back from Japan. That's me, Derek Heemsberg and Embryon on the boards, and it was really hot there. That's and what I'm, everybody says. Like the I live in Arizona. Like, <laughs> do you understand what I'm saying? Is it humidity or is it yeah, like a dry it's, heat? Okay, it's, no, it's it's humid as crap over there. It's ridiculous. Like, oh boy. But you know they have cool stuff, and I had a great time. So glad cool. to be back. It's were been you a long time. were you over for any particular reason, or was it just like a fun trip? It was uh, half and half. My uh, my friend lives there. Um, my friend I've known since freshman year of high school. Uh, she's in the JET program teaching English over there. Oh, cool. So I uh, went over to visit her and to kind of get a feel for it and see if I want to apply for the same program. So it was a cool time. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah. And you got a new tattoo. I like it. I like it. I did. I got the Starman symbol from Earthbound tattooed right on my chest. How much did that hurt? Uh, actually, it was the least painful one I've gotten. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, it's it pretty good. Cool, cool, cool. And that other voice you just heard was uh, Stephen Meyerink, ladies and gentlemen. Taylor's on the boards. How you doing, buddy? Not bad. <laughs> it's hot. And it's hot. Yeah. I'm, in, I'm in St. Louis, and uh, it's like 100 and some odd degrees, and the air conditioning in my new apartment is not quite up to snuff, so it's nice and warm. Yep, yep, yep. I myself moved as well, so I am now in a house, and I'm in my little bat cave of a basement right now, which I really like. So it's like my whole computer and office, all my books, everything's downstairs in the basement, which kind of leaves the upstairs nicely uncluttered, which I really like. And so I get to come down here when I'm playing video games. Like, when I'm playing spooky games, I'm in a room that has no windows, so I can't wait to, like, close all the doors and, like, try to freak myself out a little bit. You gotta get a PS4 and download PT, man. Dude, uh, not an RPG, but man, that was a cool thing. That was oh, awesome. that was a real like. I think more games need to have like that was Kojima doing what he does well. Like, it was like, hey, download this thing. It's supposed to be a scary game, and I'm like, all right. And my apartment with three reasonably, I would say, reasonably bold men that aren't <laughs> easily frightened to have their experience with horror games were like. Freaking out and looking away from the screen. It is terrifying. It was really well done. And I, I think I've said it before on the show a number of times that I always thought that Kojima was a really, really good fit for horror because he does a lot of those like freaky things. He does the fourth wall breaking. I don't know if necessarily Silent Hill is the right fit for that because Silent Hill has never really gone that kind of direction but from what i saw it, it, it looked interesting um guillermo del toro being attached of course has me really excited i know it's kind of become a, a big internet thing to hate on the strain but anyone that's hating on the strain you need to understand that they're following the books very closely like it's a slow burn it's very much in the style of alien it's not a show where he's going to show you all the monsters in the first episode, so people are getting really frustrated with that. But that level of restraint, just watching videos of PT on YouTube, were like, gah! Like, that door it, it, moment. It, ah. it, it gets you so well, because like, it takes the familiarity that you develop over the course of playing it, which I don't want to say much in case people haven't played it, but it, you're repeatedly doing the sort, same sort of thing over and over again, but it it takes that expectation that you have where you know something is going to happen and yet it's arguably worse because of that. Yeah. It, there was always this like moment of me sucking in breath whenever I was watching a video of someone rounding that corner. Like I would just like, 
Like, like you're just waiting to see something. And every time it doesn't happen, it gets worse. And it you're does. just like, oh. Well, it's like, it's like the first fear versus fear two. What you don't see is much creepier than what you do see. Yep. And on that note, uh, I started playing the original Fatal Frame, and that's a freaky oh, little game. Oh, that's good. That's a freaky little game. <laughs> yeah, it's fun, like too. Yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying it. It's a little archaic. Um, you know, you can see the advancements that have happened in, what, practically 10 years of game design. But I'm, I'm really enjoying it. I'm excited to get to Fatal Frame 2, because apparently everybody says that that's the, the big one. Like, yep. that's the one that... That's the one I've played. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm enjoying that. Uh, so, uh, I guess we'll start talking about some of the games we've been playing, and then we'll, uh, we'll have a little bit of discussion. Steven and I were kind of texting back and forth the other night, and then we got some listener mail. But I've been playing kind of two adventure games recently that couldn't be more polar opposite if they tried. Uh, so I've been playing Walking Dead Season 2 and uh, Shadowgate, which is the uh, Kickstarter game of the old NES classic that just came out this past week. And We these... have an interview with the developer coming soon, too. Yes, we do. Um, and these are two point-and-click style adventure games. Well, I guess Walking Dead Season 2 isn't so much a point-and-click, but they're two adventure games that very diametrically opposed. So Walking Dead is very much focused on its story, its narrative, player decisions, and the adventure game part is kind of ancillary in a lot of ways. It's it's kind of vestigial. It's off to the side. It's something that you just kind of play around with a little bit. Solutions are very easy to figure out. It's it's kind of the gamey portion of their game. Whereas Shadowgate is a very old school kick you in the teeth you need to figure out this adventure game logic to get into the window type adventure game that I, I think a lot of people were, were kind of pissy at Telltale for toning down the adventure game elements. I think Shadowgate is there for them to really kind of hold up to and something that they've really been looking forward to. Well, you got to duct tape the, the flower pot to the sledgehammer to open the window. Something like that. Like... You, need to, you need to pour water on the brazier and then hit it with a hammer to get the hook bottom and <laughs> use that on a rope to make a grappling hook. Honest to God, that was one of the there things. There you go. You, you know yeah. what's going on. Yeah, honest to God, I had to do that last night. And Jackie was like in the chair reading a book and I was getting so mad. I was like, this adventure game logic is driving me crazy. Oh, it sounds wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, so Stephen, you kind of mentioned in the pre-show warm-up that you weren't a big fan of Walking Dead, and I, I just wanted to like go back to why you, you kind of struggled with the original uh, Walking Dead Season 1 last year. It's kind of weird, because I know I would like it, because I like The Wolf Among Us, but admittedly, I really, I've read the Walking Dead graphic novels up to a point. I don't like the TV show. I think the game takes more after the show than the book. I disagree um, with you there, but okay. Um, and I... You know, I like Telltale's style of gameplay. I mean, I like the Back to the Future games. I love Wolf Among Us. I don't know if it's a combination of the fact that I had played The Last of Us recently, and I think that's just an infinitely better game in every regard. Um, or the fact that, you know, I wanted to change something I had done. And I, I like, and the, again, this is just the design of the game, and, you know, I need to deal with it. But, you know, there were, like, I accidentally gave a piece of food to someone I didn't mean to, and I'm like, oh, I just want to go back and change that. But I can't, because if I want to go back in my save, I get to replay the whole episode. But you can't skip cutscenes, because they have things you have to do in them. So I redid the first episode once, and then I was like, alright. And I started the second one, and I wanted to change something I had done. Because I like to experiment and see what happens. And it was like, no, you have to replay the whole thing now, and I don't know. I was just like, I don't care about any of these people, this is stupid, I'm done. So yeah, it's one of those things, it's like, I used this, this, this expression earlier. It's like good literature. I recognize that this is clearly a good experience, but it's not what I want, and I don't want to play it. 
what's funny is that your complaints, you sound more like me than I think you ever have on this show before, because I'm kind of the guy that likes to experiment and try new things in my game. But with Walking Dead, I just play it once. Like, I just want to get well, the experience and not know any of the other decisions that I could make. Because I think the game's really good at making you feel like you have a lot of control. But as we've said before, you actually don't. Well, that's the thing. is I, That's normally how I play, too. I mean, we wrote, we wrote those editorials way back in the day where I don't replay games because I sort of get attached to the first experience I had. Mm-hmm. But the way I play adventure games is I like being able to, before I can commit to that decision, you know, in The Walking Dead, it's like you made this click, it happened. You might not have, like, known what would happen contextually here. So then he does something. I'm like, that's not what I wanted to do, and I can't go back. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, per one episode, I'm not going to go back and be like, oh, I let this person die. I want to change that. I, that's not something I want to do. But just, I don't know. I think it was just a combination of zombie fatigue, having, you know, I, I find The Wolf Among Us's world much more interesting. I don't know. That's fair. Just, and and then, and then yeah, exactly. Like, And I love zombies. It's just, you know... If you're going to give me zombies, you have to give me something interesting in that space. And I know everyone says The Walking Dead did do that. But um, I can't remember if it was IGN or Game Informer posted a major spoiler for what happens at the end, like, without any sort of warning on Twitter. Uh, So I'm definitely never going to play it because I know what happens at the end now. Yeah, I I think it's one of those things that when I was experiencing it, I really liked it. I totally agree with your zombie fatigue argument. To... To your point about uh, making decisions, I think Walking Dead 2 is much better about that because they actually have the episodes divvied up into chapters, and there's like 11 chapters across a two-hour episode. So they're, they're spaced out pretty nicely so that you wouldn't have to repeat too much if you wanted to go back and change decisions. So I, I think that they heard you there. Uh, the saving issues have been a lot better in this season. Mostly what I like so much about that game's story, and I found it in the first one as well, with the exception of one or two kind of mustache-twirling villains, I like that the characters all feel real. Like, they they don't have, like, these... They aren't archetypes. They aren't like, well, I'm the nasty character. Like, there's a reason why the one guy is kind of a jerk to you. Like, it makes sense. There's a reason why bad things happen. You can kind of get a sense of who these characters are. And there were genuine moments where I didn't know how a character was going to respond when I did something. And I really, really like that about The Walking Dead. I think it plays its its cards pretty close to the chest and it it makes a lot of the character interactions very very fun to me so i've been enjoying uh season two i'm about ready to start episode three because i think uh the fifth episode is going to come out if not this week then in the very near future i'm looking forward to seeing where they go i think their craft they they know what they're doing at telltale they have a type oh definitely definitely yeah they have a type of game that they're playing I think it's going to play very well with Game of Thrones. I'm really excited to see how they handle that because that's all character interaction. You know, people yep. walking through the garden and plotting against each other. I, I'm looking forward to that. I think they know what they're doing, and I'm really enjoying it. Uh, on the other side is Shadowgate, which is a game that I get very, very pissed off at, but I fundamentally really like I really like the old school. So Shadowgate is a a fantasy point-and-click adventure game. You're a hero tasked with uh, traversing a castle and stopping an evil wizard. It's as cliched as you can get. But man, even though this game is only conveyed in in hand-drawn art and uh, like a couple of cutscenes, it's so immersive. Like, you feel this world when you walk into it, and it's this really, like, nasty fantasy setting where, like, a a, a little tiny mistake can get you killed. You're 
able to interact with so many different aspects of the game. It's a really, really cool world. It's just that the adventure game logic at times just God, the, my my grappling hook argument from a couple minutes ago. Those moments are just like, can anybody beat this game without going onto a message board or finding a wiki or finding a guide? And I almost wonder, is that kind of the point? Because this was an old NES game way back in the day, and I'm sure kids on the playground were exchanging methods for getting through areas. Is this kind of what it's supposed to be like Derek gets stuck at a certain point and says, Oh, how would, how was I able to get past this gate? And then I talk him through it. Is, is that almost the purpose of the game? I wonder. Yeah. But only if you trade me your Dunkaroos for my apple, something like that, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Like we got to barter here. For we got to get the Dunkaroos that have the little confetti colors in them too. Cause those yeah, ones are the that's best. the one I want, but I don't give it away for free. So you better have some to trade. <laughs> yeah. I think that's kind of a bygone experience. Um, because, sure, you could go and look it up online, but um, this was released pretty recently. Yeah, like, I know it's a remake, but is it is it because there's not a lot of information out there or just because you prefer the experience of going in blind? Like, what what makes this different from the other games in the same vein that you could just jump into blind, you know, without, like, like you'd know there's a guide out there, but you still choose not to use one. What makes this one different? I think because in a lot of adventure games, you... All the tools to solve the room are in the room with you. You know what I mean? Like, there's a block of wood and a nail and, like, a door. And so you have to, like, you know that the solution is in the room with you. In this game, like, the castle just sprawls really fast. Like, within a couple minutes, you're going to have, like, ten rooms that you can go into. And one piece in one room works in another room, but it, it's you're not quite clear how to go about doing it. Uh, you basically have to click on everything in the environment because sometimes – like, there's a door in one of the early uh, rooms that you could not even – I didn't even see it right away, so I had to like click around and find out where it was. So it, it's just that it's a very open adventure game. It's not giving you – like when Clementine gets into trouble in Walking Dead Season 2, she's in a room. You know right, you, can, you can get out of that room. Yeah, you have, like, a screen worth of stuff to interact with. Exactly. This is yeah. not that way. I, my inventory is just full of stuff right now. Like, I've got a bucket, a bone, a skull with glasses on it, an orb, uh, a scepter. Like, I just, you know, I, I, chewing gum, like, bits of salt. And I just have all these things. And you just start rubbing them up against, you know, whatever obstacle you're trying to overcome. And to the game's credit, when you do figure something out... 90% of the time, it's a, oh, how could I not have realized that moment? Like, it, it's a moment of, I'm an idiot. I'm an absolute idiot. Why did I not think that through? Like, at one point, I didn't think to try opening a door. So I, like, tried to put a key in it or, like, you know, do something to it. And I couldn't get through the door. And then I thought, well, wait a minute. Why don't I just open the, uh, yeah, of course, just open the door first. Like, I was about ready to hit it with a battering ram before I tried just seeing if it was open. It was a very Monty Python moment. But it's it's this huge world of interaction. And it actually made me remember, and this is kind of topical because they just announced that they're porting it to next-gen consoles and PC. I think the Resident Evil remake on GameCube handled its adventure game elements beautifully. Because if you remember in that game, when you were done in a room, like you had fully explored it and done everything you could in the room, it actually grayed out the room on your map. 
and it said that the room was fully explored. So you didn't go back to it and start, you know, fiddling with things to try to make it work. You knew that that room was complete. I think Shadowgate kind of does something similar where important rooms are marked on your map of like, oh, here's something interesting. But I think if it had gone just an extra level to maybe tell you that, hey, you're done with this room and you don't have to worry about it anymore, that would maybe help me out a little bit. But then I think you start to lose some of that really hardcore adventure game element that you know people want. And this is a Kickstarter game. People well, said, there, yeah, there's an extent. Like you know, you certainly don't. I don't like the Telltale style of. I do like their games, but like I would hardly consider them adventure games. They're more like conversation story simulators. Yeah, they're, um, they're visual novels. Versus like a Sierra game or a LucasArts game where you get a bunch of wacky items to do stuff. Uh, you know, there's, a, there's a, a fine line between I don't want 30 screens available to me and 20 items that I have to possibly combine and or use on hotspots. But I also don't like the telltale. You have a bucket and a rope and you have one screen and you have to use all these items in that order. Right, right. And I, <sighs> It's interesting. I'm really, really liking Shadowgate. I'll probably try my best to finish it, but it's a game that I can only play for like an hour or two at a time. And I think you guys would like it. it it's it's just interesting. There's nothing else like it right now in terms of that pure adventure game style. And it's, it's a lot of fun. It's deeply immersive, and it feels great when you solve something. And the atmosphere in the game is awesome. Steven, you're going to love the soundtrack. It's it's very I'm like trying to get a copy now. It's like wispy. It's fantasy kind of. It, it feels like Conan. Like it feels like a wispier version of Conan, if that makes sense. Like it isn't full of drum beats and everything, but it's very violin heavy. It's got like it, it feels like you're in a tavern at times. It's just a cool game. It's 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 deeply frustrating at times, but it's so cool. I really like it. Those moments of frustration though are what make an experience memorable. I think because. You know, you think about a game that's easy, like, look at Shovel Knight. I love Shovel Knight, but I would probably give it a lower rating than I would have when I finished it, because, like, I, I think I said on the show before, it's too easy. So, like, I destroyed all the bosses. I don't even remember half of the boss patterns or at all, because I just was like, whack, 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 all right, I win. And, I, like, I think that, that kind of trial and adversity, obviously you don't want it to be too much, but you remember the... I, I remember more fondly the games I played when I was younger or now for the parts I was stuck on than the parts that I just blazed through because it was so easy. Right. And uh, I know we talk about this game a lot on the podcast, and I'm sorry for that, but it, it, it's such a good example of it. And I was thinking about it the other day. I was watching a lot of reviews for uh, The Last of Us Remastered Edition, and a lot of people were saying how hard the game was and how often they died. I played that game on hard, and I think I only died three or four times, but I always felt like I was right on the cusp of dying, if that, that was, makes sense. That was a very good balance, I thought. Yeah, like... like that's a good hard challenge. It's not like you have to die to succeed here. It's you could very easily die if you don't play well here. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think I think that game would lose a lot of its impact if it was easy enough that you could just skate through every challenge. And Absolutely. I think, and like, I, I also think you would – not to cut you off, Stephen, but I also think that if you died over and over in that game, I think it would get monstrously frustrating. The couple of times I did die – they were on sections that, repeating that section again, I, I saw the flaws in the game. I saw the issues with, like, the AI or, you know, just moments where the game didn't click. <laughs> Clickers. Or moments, nah. where, moments where it didn't totally come together. So it's like any good game needs to push you right to the point of failure and keep you there and not continually shove you over, if that makes sense. 
Yeah. In other words, don't do what I'm doing and play on grounded mode, which I think there are, there's an audience for it, and I'm in that audience, but it's not a very big audience. Yeah, and it's, it's also I would never, ever play that mode. Ever. It's it's so playable without the, the listening mode. You don't even miss it once you get used to it. Uh, I guess, but uh, and and that's one of the issues. Like when we were talking about E three, I was saying how concerned I was about Alien Isolation because I think if that if you die over and over in that game, you're gonna see the flaws in it. You're gonna see the issues. So to bring it back to Shadowgate. Dying in Shadowgate is actually half the fun, I think, because you can die in really unique ways. Like, you walk into a room, and you don't have a shield equipped, and so a guy just blasts you with an arrow. Or you try to walk across a lake, and a tentacle monster eats you really quick. Those moments are cool, but they can also be insanely frustrating if you don't know how to get through them. If you're kind of sitting there like, okay, do I... Do I attack the goblin with my dirk? Oh no, that didn't work. Okay, do I do I try to throw a javelin at him? Oh no, that didn't work. I died again. Do I try reasoning with him? Okay, he killed me again. Uh, so oh, just to make sure, Shadowgate doesn't have combat, right? It's just no, an adventure game. No, it's just a pure adventure game. But you're inter- you interact with things, and so like an enemy on screen, like a goblin, you have this list of things that you can do to it. But only one will work. And so the thing that works on him is actually, like, the last thing you probably would have done. And so I died on, like, the first goblin in the game, like, five times in a row. And I was getting really frustrated. Like, okay, this isn't fun. This is me just dying over and over again to figure out what the solution is to the puzzle that is the goblin, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah, it's, it's a weird game. It's a really weird game, but I think... Fans will definitely love it as much as I hate saying that kind of stuff. Like, oh, fans of the genre will love this. But it is a game that's for a certain type of gamer. And I, I think that they'll enjoy it. So that, that's that been my experience with Shadowgate and uh, Walking Dead Season 2. Two games I really like, but very uh, opposed. And Steven, I think you should give Walking Dead Season 2 a shot. I think you should. They, they cleaned up enough. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I mean, if you know if you know what happens at the end of season one, then hipsters. Yeah, I mean, continue. Yeah, I, well, I haven't finished the Wolf Among Us yet. Like, I finished episode three, and I need to is do four it, and five. Oh, five is out, isn't it? Yeah, it's actually been out for like a month or two. Uh, okay. And like, I really like the last two episodes. So, I'm still on episode four of that. I I think I just kind of forget that, that I have that you have it. <laughs> that I have it. Yeah, because it's you know. Well, that's it's not, just, and it's not like you have to sit down and be like, "All right, I need three days to play this." It's like, no, I just need to sit down for like two hours and I'll be yeah, done. It's a well, one that, session kind of thing. Well, that's what gets to uh, Stephen and I had like that little disagreement about how to play those games, and I really prefer to play them when they're all released because otherwise, I think I would forget about them. I think I would be like, "Oh, this game came out, and a month later, episode two comes out, but I've got other stuff going on." I like to marathon a game. I like to sit down and finish it. If I don't finish a game after I start it fairly quickly, I will not finish it. I'll stop. Like I started playing Batman: Arkham Asylum again fully intent on finishing it and then in the middle of the move i stopped and i have no desire to go back and replay it like it's just skipped my mind now well good now you have plenty of time to play shadow hearts it's yeah right (laughs) i think i think with those it's fairly similar to having a a tv show available all at once to watch on netflix or to watch it as it airs uh, week by week and i think there's a certain weird joy to get out of the anticipation waiting every week for the episode so same for walking dead like that's the approach that i take with those games just because I think it's really fun to ponder what possibilities they're going to take the story in and what kind and, of choices to, I could possibly make. 
and to like talk about it. Like that was the same way. I think we even talked about this in the show. It's the way I watch Breaking Bad. Like I only watched the last season, but it was really cool to finish an episode and like discuss what had happened. Yeah. So it's the same way for me. That's how I approach Walking Dead and, and any kind of episodic game, just because I think the, the buildup is part of the fun. And it's always cool to be like, holy crap, new episode comes out tomorrow. I, I forgot because they tend to just announce them like a day before. Yeah, they're like, hey, it's coming out now. You're like, all right. Surprise, episode five is out. Like, what? So just like they did uh, earlier this week, actually, with uh, the final episode of Walking Dead season two. They were like, by the way. And that's what made me. Be out. I went and bought it on Steam sale because it was only like 12 bucks. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to play this all when it's all out because I like to marathon stuff. I mean, with my work schedule and things, uh, we were marathoning Attack on Titan and we got distracted with the move. And Jackie and I are like, okay, we have got to finish this. We've got to do it before school starts. So, like, tonight when she gets home, we're actually going to watch like six episodes of Attack on Titan. I'm really mad they changed the opening theme music midway through the show. That really what, annoys me. That's what animes do. They change the theme song every no, season. No, Record of Lotus War didn't do that back in 1992 or whenever the hell it was. That's because back in 1992, they hadn't yeah. realized that this was such a lucrative industry yet so that by releasing a new single all the time, they could get people to buy that single. Also, Record of Lotus War. Awesome. Jackie got me back a DVD copy of it, which I'm really excited had- Elves and swords and sorcery in our anime. War was badass. If you speak ill of that, I will shut this podcast. I will turn this car around. <laughs> Back in my it. day, Lupin the Third was the ultimate hero. Lupin the Third. Man, I used to play that song on DDR. <laughs> they, had, they had the loop on the third theme song. I'm kind of interested in Tokyo Ghoul. Has any? Oh man, that? I'm watching that. Is I'm it good? That. It's so good. Okay. So, so um, I moved about two months ago, and uh, one of my two roommates keeps up on anime, so he, he checks out everything that airs every week. So we're watching um, a couple of shows this season. I, I don't want to go on too much of a tangent, but we're watching Tokyo Ghoul, um, Zonkyo no Terror, and what's the last one? Oh, Akame Got Kill. All three wildly surpassed my expectations. Like, uh, Tokyo Ghoul is this really cool... Um, I don't know how to describe it, like kind of gothic horror. I don't know about gothic. It's it's like an urban horror, so I don't know why I said gothic. But it's set in Tokyo. Basically, there are people called ghouls who um, they look like humans, but they have to eat the flesh of other people to survive. And so there's all of these societal ramifications of like, how do you sustain yourself eating human flesh? Like, what are you supposed to do with yourself? Do you deserve to live if you're a ghoul? So, um, and they have like powers and they fight and do crazy crap but uh it's it's really good i it's way better than i thought it was going to be i think it's my favorite show that's on of all the anime i've tried watching this season and i haven't watched anime seriously in like years so it's kind of cool to be back into like oh well i actually know what's going on here anyway yeah tokyo ghoul highly recommend it cool uh there was also another like anime show that was kind of i think it's a mecca where I forget, I put it on our Hulu Plus. Like I, I spent the money and got Hulu Plus because Jackie was like, I need to watch the new Sailor Moon, and now all she does is complain about it, uh, which is kind of a thing on the internet right now. Like this is why we can't have nice things because everybody's hating on it. Uh, but there's like an anime out. It's like a, a mecha anime where like the the aliens are super advanced, but like the human beings are kind of like riding around in dinky like old Oldsmobile like anime mecha stuff. I don't know. I, I forget what it's called, but I'm gonna check it out. I put it on our Hulu and Hulu kind of at a cool source for anime right now which is you know back in my day when we had to spend you know 20 bucks to get three episodes of dragon ball z and they were heavily edited and right man i got my my first exposure to anime was uh dragon ball curse of the blood rubies on vhs i bought it from a fries grocery store <laughs> 
Uh, for me, it was Lotus War, dude, and that's why I'm so excited that it's coming in from eBay because I have I have the old VHSs that I had to spend a hundred bucks on to get these six VHS tapes way back in the day. Ah, They're expensive. Man. Yeah, I used yeah. To go to was... Suncoast and uh, be like, "Hi, recommend something to me," and they'd be like, "Well, there's this show. You can get the first DVD of it for seventy dollars, and it has three episodes." <laughs> You're like no, I don't yeah, want. I'm I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, so it's it's nice that uh, streaming services have made that made anime so much more available since. Yeah, it's, I think... a, it's an import, and now we can just be like, oh, internet. So and isn't mm-hmm. uh, Knights of Sidonia is getting pretty good reviews, and that's on Netflix, on Netflix. I believe. Yeah, and that's kind of an inter. I, I like. Isn't it like there's an alien species that's like gender neutral, which is kind of interesting. Like I don't mm-hmm. know. I mean, that's, that's not really that uncommon. Well, you know. I, I don't know. I'm just... I'm, I don't know. I don't know, uh, man. Don't... Greg recommended it to us. Greg Delmage. Hey, Greg, what's up? I know you listen. Cool. All right, somebody else talk about games, because I'm all adventure gamed out over here. Are you? I am. Is that possible? Well, you're not Steven, so I guess it's possible. Yes, that's true. Do you like uh, adventure games? Well, okay. I can talk about what I've been playing. Um, primarily, I, I finished Occubus Strip last week yeah um, so that I, I could review it all right so this is a game that i had pretty re- I, I would say not high expectations but just reasonable expectations for after playing it at e3 it wasn't on my radar at all and when we saw it at e3 i was actually really impressed by it because of the, the I, I liked all the detail that they put into the game like it has a an in-game twitter system where you can read posts and like an email system it reminded me a lot of um dot hack just in the whole, like, we're crafting a virtual world that you can interact in as much as you want to, or you can just play the game. Um, I guess I should probably back up and explain what the game's about. If you're listening to the podcast, you've probably heard of Occupus Strip. It is a game where you prowl around a virtual recreation of Akihabara in Electric Town. So it's Japan's video game, anime, whatever, mecca. And uh, so they've recreated this down to every shop, basically. They, they actually went out and licensed all of the shop names so that in the game they can have them appearing where they are in real life. Um, strangely enough, I was there last month when I was visiting Japan. Did you strip people's pants? I did, actually. They didn't really care for it, but I did. Um, <laughs> I landed. Have you ever been to a Japanese prison, son? They're so polite there. <laughs> the futons are so... <laughs> so, I, no, but uh, I, went to, uh, I went to the Gundam Cafe, which was pretty awesome, and I took a picture of it from the outside, and, like, I'm playing Akiva's trip, and I emerge from the station or whatever and there's literally the Gundam cafe right there like at the same angle I took my picture at and uh it was kind of surreal to see that so soon after being there so they did a really good job of of recreating Akihabara digitally so what you do in the game is like like you mentioned you you walk around and you're stripping people's clothes off for a reason though a narrative reason this is important uh basically like there are these superhuman vampire-esque beings called synthesizers um they are dumb and mean and you got to beat them up uh so you do that by by stripping off their clothes and then they burn up in the sunlight like like you do if you're a vampire um the game's story is uh, well i would say subjectively in my opinion i think it's kind of crap it's basically just like lol i'm gonna take off people's clothes because uh i'm a freedom fighter are they i i have a question are they wearing masks what? Like, are the people whose clothes you knock off, are they wearing masks and gloves? No. Well, I mean, I guess they could, I, there's probably a mask headgear, but typically no. Why? I, well, I guess I'm having a problem with the core concept. 
Because, oh, I see what you mean. Like they're I, already exposed to the sun, so yeah, their their idea is like from the neck down, and they they make a point to say that. I think that's just uh, like a so it's an, ex- an excuse, really. Stephen, Stephen, uh, somebody said something very important on. Uh, I think it was uh, who who was it? The crap. Uh, the guy who wrote. Um, God, I'm completely blanking on this movie. Uh, it's the movie where the kids get all superpowers, and it's starts with a C. <laughs> okay, shut, well. shut the hell up! It's a found footage movie. The kids all have superpowers, and they uh, it came out like two or three years ago. Uh, I remember that. I yeah. don't know what it's called. But... It starts with a C, and I'm completely blanking on it. I have it upstairs. I'm about ready to go run up. But anywho, the Cur- writer of that... Heroes? What? Cur Heroes? No, shut up. Uh, and the writer of that movie, he actually said something where he was like, uh, I was asking my dad for writing advice one time, and I asked, and my dad said, well, how do you kill a vampire? And so I responded, oh, sunlight, uh, stake through the heart, garlic. And he goes, no, you kill a vampire however the hell you want because they're fictional creatures. You can do whatever the hell you want to them. So don't think too much about it, Stephen. That's what I was – Chronicle, actually, that was the name of the movie. That was that's surprising coming from you, actually. <laughs> Mr. Mr. I cannot suspend disbelief for most things. Uh, but uh, that that actually you know had what? a lot I, of impact I, on me. I was I, like, oh, that's true. I guess I guess I have to admit I was kind of being catty because like – on the one hand, I like the silliness of Akiba's trip, Akiba's strip, which is clever. Uh, it just sort of annoys me that they try to blow all this smoke to make it sound like it's not just an excuse to knock people's clothes off. Which, yeah. I mean, I, I realize that it is, and like that's the concept, so if you don't like that, that's fine. It's just like, it's like don't try to make it sound like, like whenever like, I hear somebody like go, some well, actually... Thing. Yeah, like I've I've heard, I've read people explain it like, well, actually, it makes sense because in the canon of the game, they, <laughs> they can be burned by sunlight from the neck down. And I'm like, so what you're saying is that it's all a bunch of nonsense made up so you can knock people's clothes off. And again, I'm okay with that. It's just right. I think I yeah, I think it's kind of silly to pretend like it's more than it is. But I if if they're making a non hentai game, really, they had to create some kind of narrative impetus to do it. So I don't know. Well, maybe they didn't. Maybe they. Maybe they could just be like, so in this game, you strip people. But anyway, like, so the the game, I don't actually, I don't take offense to it. I don't think, like, there's no actual issue here as far as the thematic so the material sucks. being problematic. Yeah, the game is just, like, not a, a functionally good game. Um, this is kind of like Conception all over again, where even, and even with Conception, I think there was a little bit of questionable stuff. But uh, with this, it's just like, okay... So you're stripping people's clothes off to kill them because they're vampires. It's equal opportunity. There are male and female vampires, uh, synth sisters. Um, there are bosses where when you strip them piece by piece, uh, you get like a little cutscene, a little cut-in portrait where they actually went back and uh, they had them for the female characters in the Japanese release and then for the male, for the North American release, uh, Exceed approached the developer and they created strip portraits for the male bosses too. So like, it's just there, like it's silly, it's it's not something that I could ever take seriously for any reason. And I, I don't see this as the kind of game that people are like, Oh yeah, that's hot. But, but you know, I mean, I never know. So the, I oh, take yeah, no offense hot. to it whatsoever. Yeah, that's hot. I take no offense to it. It's just like not a very fun game. Um, it's, it's kind of a, a loose action RPG where you attack with one of three buttons. You can attack their head, their torso or their legs. And each one targets a piece of clothing. Um, it's in real time, so you just do little, you hit with combos, and there's not a whole lot of strategy involved. You can block, and if you hold the block button, you just, you dodge incoming enemy attacks, and you can counterattack. 
But that's really all there is to it. So, like, you just beat an enemy, you wear them down, and then you hold the button to strip their, their clothing off. The animations when you do that are actually really funny and over the top. Uh, the game actually reminds me in a lot of ways of Way of the Samurai, which was a PS2 game where you just played as a, a samurai. And it, it pretends, or it looks like a really serious game on the surface, but then you can do things like jump on train tracks and get hit by a train and somersault 50 feet into the air, <laughs> or, like, steal people's food out of restaurants and stuff. Like, So this is a similar game where I, it's just it's got a lot of visual comedy going on. And I think the visual comedy is a lot funnier than anything they try to do in terms of, like, oh, well, let's tell these jokes. So... But back to the gameplay, the the combat is just you strip people, and it's frustrating because there's not there's not really anything to it other than wearing them down and taking the clothes off. So you'll get swarmed by like five or six enemies, and the game doesn't have very good collision detection, so people will kind of teleport around sometimes, and you'll get stun locked by enemy attacks, and you just have to sit there, and you just I played it on the uh, the hardest difficulty because the three difficulty options were easy, casual, and gamer, and gamer was the hardest one, and I was like, okay, so this sounds like it would at least be a normal difficulty. But I guess all it did was make enemies do three times damage, which ended up being really irritating in the end. Uh, But the game is just like, it's functionally, it's it's boring. And every encounter is exactly the same. From the first encounter of the game until the final boss, there's no variety in what you do. Mm. The only thing that changes is the amount of HP the enemy has and, and or how many enemies are being thrown at you at once. Like, no boss has a special attack. Nobody has any kind of special, there's no special mechanics. There's nothing beyond stripping them off. So... I found it to be incredibly repetitive and the structure of the game is literally you talk to somebody and they give you an excuse to go fight people. And then you talk to somebody and they give you an excuse to go fight people. You fast travel from one place on the map to another and there's nothing in between. I, I was just like, is this really going to be the whole game when I, when I was playing it for like, I don't know the first hour I was like, wow, this is going to be the whole game, isn't it? And it was, thankfully it's a pretty short game. It's like six hours long, but, uh, it is a it is an interesting experience for sure, and I and I said as much in my review that just because it is unique and oddball doesn't make it good. Mm-hmm. And I think there used to be a time when a lot of us, myself included, looked at stuff in Japan and was like, "Wow, that's so different from anything we do ever get in America." So that, there's that's an, there's an anime box art in this game. It's gonna be good. Hey, there's hey, hey. Yeah, we were young like, and stupid back cool. then. It's a, yeah, but no, those, it's, but those games okay. were actually good too. So, and they, they often were, but a lot of it was the novelty of having something that was so completely different from what we were used to. So, yes, there were there were types of games. Like, if this game was made 10 years ago somehow, I don't know, it probably would have never come here. Just because of the, the relationship of develop, like the relationship between Eastern and Western publishers has gotten so much better over, year, over the years. And um, it, it probably would have been considered too risky or too, too Japanese to bring over back then. So now we have companies like Exceed that are willing to take risks and bring these kinds of things over, but they're they're not inherently good because they're obscure or odd. And I think that there's an issue with that mindset. Like I know there are a lot of people out there that are just like, it's Japanese, I want it automatically. Mm-hmm. And I can appreciate that people want things that aren't blood, guts, blah, shooting, blah, because I don't like that kind of stuff either. But this isn't good by virtue of its obscurity alone, which is what I said in my review. So it's, it's a really... Um, it's just kind of a it's a boring repetitive game that tries to be funny and that's the only thing that it really has going for it and the visual comedy is genuinely funny like i said it, uh, some of the strip animations are pretty hilarious like there's a drunken fist strip style that you can equip where like you smash somebody in the solar plexus and then like I don't <laughs> flick their head around and then take their top off and it's just like cool what the hell is happening cool. in this game <laughs> like it's just it's so dumb that it's funny but uh it's it's not good just because it's weird. It's 
it's eh. just weird. It's just weird, so I, I wouldn't really recommend it. But That's a shame, man. I was really excited about that coming out of E3. Yeah, because I, I, we saw it, and I was like, all right, this looks decent. But it's the, the issue with it is that it presents all of itself at once. Mm-hmm. So what I saw at E3 was exactly what I experienced for the entirety of the game when I played it at home. And that's the problem. It's like, it, it sounds like the like same the, 30 seconds. Basically. Exactly. If the game had more variety, if it, imagine bosses that maybe, you know, you had to do different things to, to strip them properly. I don't know. Like, there's yeah, things you can do there. I feel like we can make a game about stripping people, guys, that would have been better. It's probably on the internet already. You just have to look for it, my friend. Not that hard. Not that yeah, hard to not look that for. Hard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, seriously. You know, back in my day, we had to work to find our porn no, online. 56K. Like... <laughs> oh, up one night, and you only saw three women. <laughs> oh, that's a shame. Derek, you got anything else to talk to us about? Yeah, I've been playing Tales of Exilia too. I'm gonna say Exilia for you, uh, Stephen. Uh, Stephen, Thank what you. was the other way to pronounce it? <laughs> oh, I say Exilia because that just sounds cool. But you know, Ekushiria. Ekushiria. Garugamesh. Garugamesh Con 2014. I don't even get the joke, but I like it. So that's all right. That's fine. Uh, so Exilia Two is a direct sequel to Tales of Exilia. Uh, I reviewed that one when it came out. I guess it was just last year, wasn't it? Yep. Uh, so. They made a Exilia Two came out in Japan like two years ago, so we're we're a little behind there. But in terms of our schedule from the U.S. first game to this one, it's not too bad. Um, it is it is a direct sequel, so it's got all of the cast of Exilia One returning. Um, in my experience so far, they, they feel kind of shoehorned in. To be honest, it it features a new protagonist. His name is Luger Kresnik, and he is a silent protagonist, which is kind of weird. Um, I actually don't really like the way that they've handled it in this game because they're their whole thing in this one is the power of choice. So they took cues from Western games like Mass Effect and Dragon Age, and they have dialogue options for a lot of cutscenes. And most of these are just little cutscenes where, like, you can be talking to another NPC and you can say, like, hi, I'm Luger, or what are you doing here? But none of them really have much of any impact. The only difference in any... The only difference is when you make decisions are they can possibly raise a character's affinity with you, um, so, like, if I'm meeting Jude and Jude's like, I have to go do this thing, I could be like, I'll come help you, Jude, or no, Jude, go kill yourself. And if I say I'll come help That's you, Jude, then, then you get affinity points with him, and um, you can learn unique skills and stuff by being nice to people. So, basically, the only decisions in the game are you, you're going to be a dick or you're going to be nice to people. So, if you're nice to people, then you get stuff out of it. Um, the, so, in, in, in practicality, it's not really that big of a deal so that's why i think that them making a silent protagonist didn't really work in the end um i'm only like i'm maybe like seven or eight hours into it but every time there is an important cutscene where luger has to make a decision and i make it like i you know you click the dialogue option but he doesn't voice it he's silent what's um, weird he, is that i heard that that actually changes in new game plus because you can buy his voice yeah with grade yeah i don't understand with grade you can you can make him voiced on your second playthrough which just seems incredibly pointless to me for them to have locked that out at the start uh as it is all you get is like he'll say yeah uh-huh okay uh but but that's all you get so so anyway it's a new story um it takes place a year after exilia one and they're dealing with all the social ramifications of what happened as a result of Exilia one's plot i won't spoil anything uh luger is uh he's in an accident early on in the game and he gets saddled with this massive debt of like 20 million gold. And one of the main mechanics of the game is you have to pay off your loan, like Animal Crossing style. 
uh, it's actually really intrusive so far. You get constant pop-ups. If, if you have enough money in your inventory to make your next loan payment, you'll get a little pop-up thing that's like, pay your rent or pay your debt. And doing so unlocks travel or lifts travel restrictions because when, when you start the game, you basically can't go anywhere. Like the debt that you're saddled with says, a, a result of the debt rather, is that you can't use the train system to get around the world. So it's an artificial limitation to keep you from going to new areas until you've paid off enough of your debt. And you can't pay off your debt until you make enough money, and you can't make enough money until you're strong enough to fight higher monsters, if that makes sense. So there, there is a narrative that's, that's going through that is a linear narrative, but there's also a lot of side jobs that you can take. And there are also character like character chapters where you can see what each of the cast members from Exilia 1 are doing in the new world. But so far, the plot has largely been like centered around Luger and this other character, L, And the other characters are just sort of tertiary, like... They're like, oh well, things are happening, so I guess we'll come along. And I think that's, I think it's kind of lame. Like, I don't understand why these people would have an investment in this random new guy, and why all of them would coincidentally decide to join him on his journey and help him out. Um, maybe I'll get some more resolution for that as the game goes on. But uh, I'm surprised because I've heard from other people that they think this is narratively one of the better games in the series. And I don't have any issue with the main plot as it's progressing, but I just don't, I don't feel very connected to the cast this time, and I don't understand why people are helping him with his stuff. I heard they used a, they reused a lot of assets from Zillia 1. Are you seeing that with Zillia 2? Yeah, absolutely. This Ooh. is this is Final Fantasy X 2 all over again. You're revisiting Ooh. the same areas and they look the same. Like there there are a couple of of course there are new areas and there are a few changes here and there, but for the most part the game starts in um, in one city that was in Tales of Zillia 1 and other than a new area in the train station, it's the exact same place. Like, same layout, um, I think. I'm, I'm sure the NPCs are different, but, I mean, it's like the same field environment, same model mm-hmm. for, the, for the field. So I, I think it's, it's kind of depressing. It's not very fun to traverse the same areas because Tales of Exilia 1 is a game that already wants you to play it twice because it has two main characters, and you have to play through each person's story to get the full narrative because mm-hmm. they, they diverge at some points. So it's kind of like, cool, I'm, I'm excited to go through the same areas for a third time. Uh, it's it's a good thing it has an amazing battle system still. It's it's still one of the best action RPG battle systems I've ever played. Uh, I can't get enough of it, and they've added so much depth to it. Uh, Luger himself... Um, so there's like there are three new playable characters in battle, as far as I'm aware. Um, two of them are cast members from the first game who are not playable, and then one is Luger. So Luger has three weapon types. Um, everybody normally just has like their one their standard weapon and then their set of arts or whatever. But Luger can switch between uh, dual pistols, dual blades, and a giant hammer. So you can switch all of those on the fly, and you can actually string combos together using all three weapon types together. Like I can shoot my guns and then switch to my hammer and hit an enemy with that and uh, then switch to blades and do something with that. So it combines that with the pre-existing link system where you can tether two characters together and they can do basically like... If Chrono Trigger's dual text were in real time, mm-hmm. which is super cool, um, and yeah, I really the, really like that. The, the combo arts were super cool in the first yeah, one. I've, I've, I'm finally playing, finishing the first one. There's a ton of variety in how you can approach every encounter, and uh, Exilia in particular is a Tales game where every character feels super different. So if you get bored of playing one character, which is like traditionally in Tales games, uh, most people just like play as the main character, or I mean that's what I assume. The main character typically has the best movement, um, the best abilities to get around, the most well-rounded arts or whatever. So it's cool that not only is Luger super varied in, in the way that you can approach encounters by mixing all of his attacks, but you can also choose to play somebody else who's like 
different. Um, like you can play a long range character and they, they feel completely different. So it's neat that you can do that and still combine people's stuff together to make really flashy, fun attacks. So th that's the reason why XLA 1's combat never got boring to me is because anytime I was like, all right, there are a lot of encounters in this area, I'm getting kind of over it, then I would just switch to somebody else and it would feel fresh all over again. So Exilia 2 does a great job of keeping that spirit alive while still adding a ton of new wrinkles that make it more exciting. Cool. So it's a, yeah, it's, um, I think narratively it's uh, not an improvement over the first one. Um, I don't know how I feel overall in relation to the first one, like if I would say it's better or worse. Uh, it's, it's definitely still really, really fun to play, but the reused assets are a bummer and the story is kind of not really doing it for me. And also the, uh, I don't think Tales games have the best soundtracks. They are not a series that I ever point to in terms of like, oh man, this music is so great. But uh, so, so rather Tales of Exilia 2 carries that on where it's just a lot of samey music that's just there. Um, the main battle theme is, is all right, but I haven't heard anything that's making me stand up and listen and be like, holy crap, I want, you know, I want to buy that album. Mm -hmm. So so it's I, I, it's definitely a good experience, but uh, overall, but there there are some elements of it that aren't really clicking with me. And um, I'm a little bummed about it because I, I was really looking forward to this one. And I, I haven't had a terrible time with it yet, but it's not blowing me away. Well, there's another uh, Tales game that was just announced, I believe. Is there something it's else a, coming? Yeah, there's Tales of Zestiria coming out next yeah. year. Um, and it wasn't announced for U.S. release. And from the the footage I've seen, it looks significantly different in terms of combat. It's got like a different perspective. It's kind of uh, from behind over the shoulder. Mm -hmm. And there are more cool systems at play there and that one you can fuse with other party members because the the main character has a, a fusion ability and the other people are uh, basically like angelic beings. So it's it definitely is it's taking the link system and pushing it even further in a sense. So I think that one looks like it's different enough that it's gonna be interesting. And more more interaction with field environments in that one just because Exilia is notorious for having really open, bland, empty environments. So that that's continuing here. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so Zestiria looks really cool. I look, I'm still looking forward to that. Like, I still enjoy the Tales series. I just think Exilia 2 is a little bit too close to the first one. Gotcha. So that's pretty much all I've been playing. I've been playing tons of Trails in the Sky. I think I've gushed about it enough on this podcast, but it's still awesome. I'll have a review of the Steam version coming in the next week or so. Uh, still worth playing. Um, still very, very Japanese RPG, to the, like the most Japanese RPG that's ever Japanese RPG in Japanese RPG town. But so when you say that, I think Lunar. That's what I yeah, think. Yeah, that's yeah, that's 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 fair. That's accurate. It's really like a newer age lunar, even though this still came out in like '03 or something in Japan. '04. Mm -hmm. uh, it's so if you like lunar and you like that aesthetic, you'll love Trails in the Sky. The world building and character development is out of control. Good. Cool. Cool. Is this the first time we're getting that in America or no? This uh, not for the first one, but it's it's a new port for Steam, and they did some. They did a lot of work to to um, touch up the coding, make it compatible with current resolutions and runs on steam it's got like high resolution character portraits and stuff i just so. feel like that's a huge untapped ground for like old, we, final fantasy 7 is on steam as well correct yeah. and and eight yeah i mean I, I just feel like that's an untapped market like when we see how well games do on steam sale man if jrpgs would start getting on there in droves oof yeah, they actually, Exceed said that Trails in the Sky has been their most successful PC launch to date. And they had mentioned in the past that the East games were doing really well for them. So I'm glad to hear that this is doing even better. Um, the sequel is coming out. It's supposed to be out by the end of the year on Steam. But if you consider that is technically the second in like an ongoing seven-part saga at this point, 
it's a little bit frustrating that we're so far behind, mm-hmm. but uh, it's still doable. Like this, the Trails in the Sky, the first and second one form one cohesive narrative, so most of it's wrapped up by the end of the second one, and then the third one just kind of takes things from there, and then the other ones are in different parts of the same world, but um, I would definitely, I mean, if you feel like you can stomach a Japanese RPG, I'd recommend it. I don't know how much you would love it, Rob, just because it is very <laughs> slow-paced. Well, I mean, like, I'm the prologue is like six hours long. So you, you'll probably not have the patience for it at this point, but to, it's, to it's people, not gameplay centric; it's story and character centric. Do, do I have to run around putting posters up and uh, playing as a character that really has nothing to do with the main story and skateboarding in a town, and there's no Disney not characters? I'm gonna hit you. <laughs> you stop. I'm only saying that because the other night when I jumped on my PlayStation Three, I saw that you were playing Kingdom Hearts. No, my my roommate's been playing it. He's oh, okay. <laughs> I already I already cleared one point five. Oh, sorry. sorry. I I already have a perfect 1.5. Didn't so. didn't mean to offend you. Yeah, that's <laughs> I oh boy! So Stephen, what have you been up to? Nothing. This is the point in the show where you talk about games, big guy. Oh, I see. Okay. He probably well, forgot we're podcasting because he's playing Diablo three like a fiend right now. No, I'm not. I wish I was doing that. I got the <laughs> PS4 version of that actually, so I could catch co-op it with a few people. And plus, uh, it has Shadow of the Colossus armor. Yeah, and it has a Last of Us area. That's yep. other neat stuff. Which, well, tell us about the place. Yeah, so I recently played ports of two of my favorite games on the Sony consoles. Uh, so I'll, I'll speak about the one that I don't have to say as much about. Rogue Legacy, PS4 Vita, PS3. Uh, Rogue Legacy is amazing. It's fantastic and fun and awesome. Uh, yes, it is. The cross-save uh, is weird at first, but once you figure out what it's doing, uh, it's it's incredibly seamless. So it's like... I'll be out in the living room, I'll play Rogue Legacy, I'll shut off the PS4, I'll go to bed, I'll turn on the Vita, and then my, you know, my save is there. And, you know, it's Rogue Legacy, it's better on a controller. If you're playing it on a keyboard, you're doing it wrong, stop. Just stop. <laughs> um, having it, you know, it's basically, you know, you buy it on one, you get all three versions. So, you know, if you're invested in Sony's ecosystem, uh, and you like Rogue Legacy, or you haven't played it, I strongly recommend it. It's affordable, it's hours of fun, New Game Plus is great. Uh, it has all the content that was added in the major patch from last year, where it added like some more super hard boss remixes and you know some new items and stuff. Um, you know, it's Rogue Legacy. It's great. You know, we don't need to say too much more. We love it. It is yes, really we do. Uh, it is really good. I will say one thing though that it doesn't look as good on Vita as I thought it would. It 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 looks a little off. Just, just I, I don't know what it is. It doesn't I, look as good. I. S- sort of see what you're saying like the text is small but i don't honestly think the game looks that much different um it, it's certainly not a problem to play it exclusively on vita like no, I, don't, no. I don't you know it's just it's it's maybe a little bit smaller in terms of text like something is a little different about it but i don't know that i would say not as good just different mm-hmm. um it's hard to put my finger on it though but yeah. it, you know the fr- frame rate's good um which is most important for that game because that's that game basically turns into a bullet hell once you get to the end of it, especially when you hit New Game Plus. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, definitely if you dig Rogue Legacy, if you like, you know, Metroidvania slash roguelikes, uh, it's it's this addicting combination of running around slashing up enemies and dying a lot and seeing funny status effects on your character. Um, there's a new status effect now that makes the controller vibrate um, on the PS4 and the PS3. Uh, it, <laughs> you know, it, it functionally does nothing, but it's nice that they threw something in there. Um you know, it's a great time, so I, I highly recommend it. Uh, I'm sure it will be free on PS Plus, so 
On the other hand, yeah, I, guess, I bet it I, will be actually. I guess you could wait and get it, and you will be getting a great game. But I, you know, it's fantastically fun, and it's so easy to play for you know ten, twenty minutes, or for two hours. I was kind of thinking that might happen with Hohokam, which is why I haven't picked it up yet because it, it just seems like a game that's going to be on PS Plus. Oh yeah, definitely. It's like one of those like esoteric indie darlings. Yeah, they've indie done darling really, is exactly what I was going to say. They've done a really good job with making PlayStation Plus a service that you want. I mean, those free games are huge. Oh yeah, man. I'm I'm all about PlayStation Plus. Like they've actually. It's, it keeps getting better. So yeah. now, stupid question about PlayStation 4, because I'm probably going to pick mine up here in the next month. Can you, you can you play PlayStation 2 games on PlayStation 4, or is that not no. happening yet? No. You it's can't play anything but PS4 games. It's not backward compatible. But no, not not the backwards compatible. But like, if you buy a PlayStation Classic, can you play that on PlayStation 4? No. Uh, nothing. Mm. Everything has to be specifically built for it because it, they went with a completely different architecture this time. Mm. That's frustrating. But there have been a lot of rumors that they're sort of working on it, and I, they've sort of, you know, poked and prodded that they might be working on something like that. Uh, especially considering Microsoft is definitely not going to invest in that. Yeah. Uh, if you know, there was a system that you could just put in your PlayStation Two game. And it just somehow knew that you owned it, and you could like download it again or something. That would just be—I I know it's like pie in the sky. There's absolutely no way that's going to happen. Golly. Well, because then it's like, well, hey, buddy, you want to play Shadow Hearts too? Let me pass it around. I know, I know. It's—it's it's um, one of those things. That's—it—it's it, like, it's the dream, right? And it ain't going to happen. But man, that would be really, really cool. But I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see the PS1 and PS2 classics eventually working on PS4. I, I just uh, and then. PS Now, you can, you know, it's it's terribly priced right now, um, but, you know, they, they're they certainly working on ways to get older games working on there, because I'd be excited for that, too, because I, I, I could care less about playing it on PS4, because my PS3 is hooked up right next to it. What I care about is that, you know, if I could play PS1, well, I can already do this on Vita, but PS2 games, PS3 games on the PS4, then you could stream them to the Vita. Right, right, and that would be pretty Magical. amazing, yeah. I mean, I want to play Fatal Frame on my PlayStation 4 when I have it. Like, I don't want to have my PlayStation 3 plugged in for that whole purpose. But again, you know, there, there's not a whole lot they can do, like you're saying, but dang. We'll, we'll keep our fingers crossed. Sony, Sony is sort of making it their business to be the darling of the community. So yeah. that would garner a lot of goodwill. I, I, you know, nothing concrete can be said. But as, I, as Microsoft continues to screw up their messaging with, like, oh yeah, Tomb Raider, totally exclusive, totally exclusive, holiday 2015, totally exclusive, dude. Like it, it's ours. Nobody's gonna get it ever. We so, want to make Tomb Raider into our Uncharted, except that it's gonna come to every other console. Uh, yeah, I, I was really pissed when they announced that when because the the wording at first was like, yeah, it is totally exclusive forever, and I was like, are you crapping me? Like. <laughs> Good save there, Derek. Uh, uh, yeah. uh, well, it, it's just Microsoft's continue. I have no problem with them going Microsoft out. is running their company like a company. Sony is trying to make themselves... They're still a company, but Sony is try, is, it, is doing a much better job of concealing the corporateness of the, their corporate nature. Whereas right. Microsoft is like, yes, our PR consultant says that you will do great by purchasing Tomb Raider Holiday 2015 on our platform only. Yeah, I mean, is that really going to... I get it. Like, they're going to start throwing money around to get those exclusives. Uh, but, but a timed exclusive is nobody... The thing is, ten, five years ago, that would have made a difference. Yeah. Because, but now, every there are so many games out, nobody is rushing out to buy something if they know they'll be able to buy it on their preferred platform later. Yeah. Like, 
the people who had a PS3 and a PC waited for Dark Souls. Yes, I mean, did. I didn't, but then I sold it. Yes, like I, I, I made that mistake. And that's the thing is, I don't think this, you know, Polygon wrote an article about how they think it's actually good for the, the developer. And I, they made some good points that I totally disagree with. Uh, it's, it's, they're, they're not going to build up enough sales and, and Square is not going to build up enough advanced sales to make up for the sort of lack of good, the, the, the general ill will they gained from that announcement because that is blatantly anti-consumer and it's blatantly like, we're going to try to trick you into thinking it's exclusive so that way you pre-order on Xbox. And you're... Well, I mean, you know, look at the, uh, at the risk of bringing up Resident Evil again. The remake was never released outside of GameCube and Wii. It didn't sell that well. Shinji Mikami went on record saying that. Resident Evil 4, I believe, sold better on PlayStation 2 than it did on GameCube. It's like, just because you're exclusive doesn't mean that people are suddenly going to buy it. Now, if they're getting, you know, $100 million for the game for those exclusive rights, then that's great for them as a company. But this but one... It's, it, like, for, yeah, for Square, it's good for them because they're eventually going to be able to release on the more popular platform for both their game and install base. But it also doesn't make sense, as Steven and I were talking about texting each other back and forth, Square just got done pissing and moaning about how much they did not sell of Tomb Raider. The game became profitable thanks to the Definitive Edition, and now they're going to spin around and make it even harder for consumers to buy their game when they want it to sell Call of Duty numbers? Like, what? I'm sure expectations are... I'm sure Microsoft is sort of helping offset it. Here's how I would look at it. There has got to be something in place that makes that a lucrative choice because the people in the positions making these decisions know... All of the things we're saying, and they are not stupid. They must so have thrown a gotta, ton of money. They must like, have thrown a ton of money at them. Like they literally must have said, "We'll help you. To, we'll, we'll pay half the development costs, and you can still take it to another platform." Yeah, that's the only thing. Microsoft I can think is of. trying to get a holiday game. Smart, because that's you know, it's it's looking it's looking close by. They're looking to close the gap with the PS4. But the problem is that they don't know why the PS4 is selling. Sony doesn't know why it's selling. I do because it's awesome. But like. My personal opinion aside, Mike, they're trying to, to close the gap in numbers, and I think that this is a silly way to do it. But on to other things I've played. Yeah, talk played, to us about uh, Diablo. Somewhere. Yeah, I played, I, played Ult- <laughs> I played Ultimate Evil Edition. Um, you know, it's Diablo 3. It's the console version. Uh, they added a few things to it. There's, you know, a Last of Us transmog skin. Or not Last... Uh, there's a... You can dress up like Wander from Shadow of the Colossus uh, with the transmogrification. Which is cool. Is it dressing um, up like Wander? I thought it was or? a Colossus. Yeah, I thought it was Colossi. Um, maybe there's more than one. Ooh. I want to look that up. Uh, but there's a you can run into a rift that has clickers in it, which I have not found yet. Uh, but I really want to because clickers are terrifying and they'd be fun to smash up in Diablo. Um, <laughs> you know, there's like this I, new. I bought it for that. If, if, I, it's kind of sad, I know, but I, I like Shadow of the Colossus and Last of Us so much that I own the game. Oh, yeah. I actually just re- I, absolutely. I replayed Shadow of Colossus last week, and that game has held up very well, although it was hey, way... Hey, off topic! Hey, all I'm saying is that game was way harder than I remembered it. I think It is hard. Some, they, of the, some of the... Like, the Final Colossus is just dumb. Well, like, I think they changed... You at the bottom. They changed the timing, because it used to be that if you timed your strikes perfectly, it didn't matter how much the Colossi rumbled, you could get off another attack. I think they changed that for the HD collection, because that definitely was not working. Like, I used to have the timing down so right that even on the last Colossus, once I got to his head, I'd kill him in 15 seconds. Like, 
there was nothing he could do to stop me. I'm almost wondering if it was a glitch in the game, but I could not reproduce that, and I was getting thrown around like a ragdoll. Anywho, that game's awesome. Yeah, it is, yeah, which it's... actually feeds Derek's point of, you know, it being good enough that we bought, you know, Diablo 3. Yeah, well, like, I didn't own Reaper of Souls, so I would have paid 40 to upgrade anyway when it came time, so I figured 20 more, I can couch co-op it. I actually, um, my, my roommates, both, they want to play it. I have two roommates and then one other friend who wants to get in, so... I think it's going to be really a really good couch co-op four-person thing. It's been way too long since I've played a game like that. Yeah, and, you know, I, I, I was playing with that for most of my review. I played it with my roommate, and, you know, the camera's a little closer. It's a little more intimate. It feels more like a beat-em-up than Diablo 3. Um, it's, it's, yeah. it's hard to overstate. I don't buy into all the people online going, it's clearly the definitive version, and it's better than mouse and keyboard. I'm like, no, it's not better. It's just different. Yeah. And different is a great way to describe it. It feels like a very differently paced game. That could also be that I'm playing a class I don't normally play. But, uh, you Which know, one? it's Monk, uh, who, is, who is awesome. Oh, the, well, it's because they're fixing the Monk because he's been absolute garbage for Actually, so long. Actually, they, re- they released patch notes today for what they did. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, you know, they added this thing called Nemesis where it's an enemy that can appear in your game. And if it kills you, it jumps to another game on your friends list. And it's stronger because it killed you, and then it hunts you. It just hunts people on your friends list until somebody kills it. That's coming to the PC version, isn't it, when they release 2.1? I'm actually not sure. I thought it was, but I haven't found any confirmation one way or the other. Yeah. Uh, not sure. They're getting a little screwy with their messaging on what's in the PC version. What's in the, They had that problem because Loot 2.0 was in the console version way before it was in the PC version. And I think that's where the narrative started of people saying, oh, this is the definitive edition because the PC version was actually lacking behind for a couple, I think it might have been a couple of months while Loot 2.0 was being made. Yeah, you know, it could be. Or, but the, on the other hand, the uh, original console version it does not support patching. So, right. uh, you know, that's there's that. This version does. Um, you know, you've got a little gifting system where when you find legendary, sometimes you get a little gift that you can send to another player. Um, it's still an awesome game. I mean, I, well, yeah, lots of small changes. But the fact is, you know, we talked about Reaper of Souls a lot. The patch before Reaper of Souls, Reaper of Souls itself, and the changes they made since then have made Diablo 3 the game it should have been when it came out. Uh, it's it, it has a few problems here and there, but it does it hasn't stopped me from being heavily addicted to it. The combat is super fun. It's great as a co-op game. Uh, riffs are fantastic. And when the new patch 2.1 comes out, that content will be available on the PS4 version. Um, I just love that Blizzard proved me right, because I kept saying over and over again, remember, Diablo 2 was not the absolutely drop-dead amazing game that it was until Lord of Destruction. That's when that game went from being like a 9 to a 10. It went to, this is a seminal classic now because of all the additions that they made to that game. I would say Diablo 3 went from a 7 to a 9. I I think that's maybe a little harsh. I think maybe an 8, but whatever. I I see the analogy that you're making. And they definitely fixed up a lot of stuff. It is still the most fun loot hack out there. And there's a lot of loot loot hack games out there, but I, I just don't think any have that. I think, you, I, think, I think you kind of haven't played a lot of the more recent loot hacks. Uh, dude, I tried Path of Exile, didn't like it. Did I you, tried Torchlight did you, 2, didn't like it. I mean, did you play Van Helsing? No, I didn't play that one. That's the one I missed. Okay, well, it's good. But, but again, allow, I, allow me to. I want to posit a question, actually. Okay. Please do you posit. think they do? Will they make another expansion for Diablo 3? Yes. Uh, you know, I, I thought I thought it was sort of definite, but they've been a little coy with it. Like, they, they pulled and they were like, hey, do people want another expansion? I personally think they will. 
Um, especially now that they've invested all this time and money into getting the game, you know, into a position where people are enjoying it more. Uh, especially with it doing well on consoles, I think it would behoove them to release another expansion. You know, throw in you know two new acts or three new acts or you know more. Now that because this expansion had the had the duty of basically getting the game to a point where people wanted it to be. It had loot 2.0. Well, that came in the patch. That came in the patch, but you know it had adventure mode. They have all these modes now, so now they're going to be doing sort of what they did with Diablo 2, which is adding content to the game, places, mm-hmm. areas. Things for these random systems they've created to take advantage of. Yeah, I so think I think I, I I sort of think and hope they do make another expansion. I'm sure they will. I, I, think. I hope so too. Yeah, like I, I can see myself kind of getting really immersed finally since I didn't really touch it much after the after vanilla. Uh, when Loot 2.0 came out, I I made a character and got to like level seven. So I basically haven't seen any of this. I still haven't seen any of the Reaper of Soul stuff. So I, I like. I'm more excited about getting into this game with the uh, knowing that in the future there's a promise of more content or one more expansion at the very least. So. I, I think there's going to be an expansion. I think there'll be another one. Uh, you know, back, way back when, before Diablo 3 even came out, they had that uh, slideshow where they were showing that they were planning two, at least two expansions for Diablo. I think Steven's 100% right. They got the game to where it needs to be and... Now they can do some stuff with it. Narrative-wise, they've already set up that they're going to do another one, even though, golly, the narrative in Diablo 3 is so dog crap. Oh, <laughs> man. Like, so Reaper, of, Reaper of Souls is all bluster, and then it's like, yeah, oh, and then something totally unrelated and random happened, and now there's a reason for there probably to be another expansion, even though we didn't do anything with Leah yet. Yeah, that's... Uh, for a world that has such a great lore... Uh, ugh, God, and just... Come on, guys. Let's let's yeah. try... We need to try a little bit harder. Uh, and seriously, oh. we've said it before. Blizzard, stop making the game with the corrupted hero. Like, it's getting really stupid right now. <laughs> Every one of their games has a corrupted hero as the main antagonist, and I'm so sick and tired of it. Rob Steinman is Kerrigan. Corrupted hero. I guess. Like, it was cool with Kerrigan, like, the first time, and then it's just gotten really, really stupid. Arthas. It's getting a little old. Yeah, Arthas, the hero uh, from Diablo 1. Like, come on, guys. (laughs) Another thing about PS4 Diablo 3, remote play. How is that? Text is teeny tiny. You know, you, you're probably not going to be running the story. (laughs) 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 You're such a jerk. Uh, you, you know, I've, I've read a lot of people complaining. They're like, it's terrible on remote play. It's impossible to read anything. And I'm like, you kind of don't have to. Because on the console version, when you pick up an item, there are gigantic arrows on it that tell you if it's better in a certain statistic than what you're wearing. You know, you can't look at the affixes. Um, you know, I guess if your vision's bad, it would be tough. But, I mean, for the way I play Diablo 3, running rifts and stuff, uh, remote play is pretty rad. Um, it's certainly something worth keeping in mind that you are not able to play Diablo 3, you know, if you own both next-gen consoles, obviously I prefer PS4 for various reasons, but, you know, if you're an Xbox One fan, it is worth considering if you have a Vita, you cannot play a portable Diablo 3 on your Xbox. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, it is an extra selling point, I suppose, you know, if you run that way. Oh, and you get Infernal Pauldrons if you buy the game as a, as a download code, which, whatever. So yeah, they're, they're okay. They give you, they, is it like faster skill speed? Yeah, or something like that. I can't remember I mean, what it was. It's good. It's good for low level. Sure. Yeah, you know, it's 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 you know, it's like my little angel wings I have from the other versions of the game. They're neat. Hey, those are cool. Yeah, they are. 
I just uh, I, I still think that Blizzard puts together the best collector's edition because I, when I was moving, I actually like opened up the collector's edition again and looked at all the art book. They just put together the best. Coll- I know Steven is like tired of all the crazy crap and collector's editions and stuff, but Blizzard still does it better than anybody else. They they just knock it out with their collector's editions and there's their art design in Diablo three. I know a lot of people didn't like it, but I love it. Like it just looks so cool. Yeah, it's a little fantasier. But I, I like where it went with Reaper of Souls, and I still think it's an attractive game to run around. Uh, not to push us along, but I want to talk about two more games. Okay, so, go, go, go. Uh, Quest for Infamy came out. Uh, I talked about it briefly a couple months ago. I previewed it. It's, you know, spiritual successor to Quest for Glory, old Sierra point-and-click adventure game that had RPG combat system. Um, it came out. You can read my review. It's a good game. Uh, if you don't know why people liked those games and you never did, you won't like this one. But it's pretty funny. Uh, you, you, your dude is supposed to be this sort of villain, but he's more of an antihero. He's just like he's just kind of a smartass. But it's funny. Um, the combat's terrible, but again, it's 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 sort of I talked about. If you have this sort of reserve of nostalgia to tap into, you'll enjoy it because it's not difficult. It's just the combat is just sort of stupid. It's just like you know, whack whack back and forth. A little timer fills up. Um, and, you know, it, there's a lot of cool aspects to it. Like if you pick a wizard class, the way you solve certain point-and-click puzzles is different. Uh, you know, and the way you learn new abilities as a wizard is you have to go out into the world point-and-click style and find components. So it takes tropes of the point-and-click genre and turns them on their head in a nice way to, to make for more fun gameplay in the context of an RPG. Uh, and again, the writing is really funny. There's an Arrested Development reference in it, and I know I keep citing that as if it's a reason you should buy it, but that's only because it is. But and it is. <laughs> it's, 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 it's so funny. Um, it, it, you know, there's a, there's a few things I don't like about it. They sort of market the game with the big boobed chick that's in the game who's sort of not even that important of a character. Uh, and I think that's lame. But on the other hand, I guess they would have done it in the 90s too. But I'm not, I, I wouldn't excuse it. I think it's lame. They should have just put the dude in the front. But whatever. Uh, it's a fun game. You know, if you don't like point and clicks, especially old school ones, you won't like it. But if you have an open mind to that sort of thing or, you know, you have some reserves of nostalgia to tap into, it's definitely fun to play. Uh, and then the game I probably should talk about the most since I'm currently reviewing it, and it is the only non-port other than Quest for Infamy I'm talking about, is Sword Art Online Hollow Fragment. Oh, man. You Which, can do such a cool stuff in that game. This game, I, I, I said, my exact words when I said I'd review it is, I'll take one for the team. <laughs> and I, and I'm, I'm eating my words. It has an abysmal translation, but it's not like Elmanage Original, where the translation wasn't trying to be abysmal. I sort of feel like... It, it, it can't be intentional because the game is meant to be taken seriously. It's an existing property. But it's sort of a really good-natured, terrible translation that's actually making me enjoy it more because if it were a good translation, it would just be a, a sort of a bland anime story. Um, I haven't watched the anime, but I've heard it's pretty good. Um, and there's a ton of characters that exist in the anime that are in this. Uh, but there's just there's so much like weird stuff in the translation. Like You'll have sort of pop up like you know how in Fantasy Star Online you know you could you could chat with people and it pop up as little bubbles the game is simulating an MMORPG like the the anime takes place inside of an MMORPG that people can't log out of which is a trope that is way too common but it's pretty neat the way they execute it in this and uh so you know people will be running around town and there's little chat bubbles popping up on them but because the translation is so bad it's like people will say these like random fragments where there's like half of a text box worth of space and then like an exclamation point and then a what 
like with no context. So like all kinds of weird, erratic stuff happens. And like the characters you can party up with, the story characters can have little conversations with you in town where, you know, you can, you know, you can become more friendly with them and, you know, you can interact with them like you would in an MMO. So like, you know, if you get close to somebody, you know, you can hold their hand in the game or something, but the conversations they have are so stupid because they didn't translate them properly. So like someone will say, what do you think of raising harvesting skill? And your character can say, right. Or okay. As those are his only responses to every conversation. So like, (laughs) They'll ask you a non-yes or no question. You can only give them a yes or no question. But both responses are yes. <laughs> uh, so you just have to kind of guess. And it's silly. And it's not the best aspect of the game. I will say that what has shocked me about it is that uh, graphically it looks nice. Uh, a little bit of slowdown in areas with tons of characters, which I guess does simulate a console MMO. Uh, you know, attractive, bright graphics, really great high-resolution character portraits when they're talking. Um way too much dialogue like i mean seriously i sat for like 45 minutes clicking through dialogue at one point so if you're a fan of the show there's probably a lot here for you to chew on but me i'm just sort of like all right all right i get it all the girls want to do this dude i got it i got it okay um but the combat itself is like you'll jump into areas and there's tons of customization like 50 zillion different quests you can be doing in the areas and you know there's a ton of different weapon types your guy can use it's an action so it's not an action RPG. You you target an enemy like you do in an MMO, and it's simulating MMO combat, but in a more interesting, active way, where you're sort of timing the strikes of your weapon to build up a gauge that makes it so your final you use like a special attack at the end of your combo, and depending on how you build it up and you know the, how you've timed your attacks, you can do different effects, you can do different combos. There's a zillion different combat skills you can get. Uh, that uh, surprises weapons. me actually. I thought it looked more like just a like a dot hack clone, basically. Oh yeah, well that's what I thought too. That's why I was so surprised. Is that I'm playing and because there's so much complexity to it, it's kind of annoying that the translation is bad because the, the the tutorials are barely any help. Um, but as I sort of started to figure it out, there's a lot of depth to it because your character you have an SP gauge which powers your special attacks, and then you have a burst gauge which is like this is how it's like your stamina basically. So it's like this is how long your combo can go on for. And as you attack, you build up aggro like you do in an MMO. It's called risk in this game. And you actually have to give commands to your party like, hey, swap with me. Take the hate. So because as your aggro gets higher, you don't recover SP as quickly. So you can't use special attacks. You can't heal. So there's this sort of, you know, back and forth where you're actually interacting with the AI, quote unquote, party members you bring with you. And because there are so many characters, it feels like an actual MMO because, you know, it's like, hey, I liked hanging out with that dude yesterday. I'm going to go have him, you know, party with me for these quests. And yeah. uh, where the aggro gets... thing sounds a bit like Xenoblade, actually. Yeah, it, it is kind of. Uh, it's it's a little less – it's a little more overt because it's, it's simulating an MMO as opposed to a Xenoblade, which I think tries to do it in a little more of a narrative way. Uh, gotcha. But it, 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 it is kind of like that. What's really cool, though, is that – you can give the thumbs up to your party member and you can request them to do stuff like, hey, heal me or, you know, hey, attack the enemy right now and use this skill so we can do a combo or, you know, switch places with me. Uh, But what's cool is you can give them a thumbs up when they do something right. And at first it's just like, oh, whatever, it builds a morale gauge, which, you know, affects various things. But what's really cool is that it's sort of like if you're playing with a player who's low level or not good in the context of the game's fiction – if you play with them and give them the thumbs up when they do things they should be doing, like how in an MMO, if your new healer doesn't know how to heal a boss fight and you teach them how, they start doing, you know, they dodge an attack correctly or they heal you at the right time or they do a combo at the right time. If you give them the thumbs up, that teaches the AI to start doing that in those circumstances more often. 
So it's actually a much more complex MMORPG simulator than I thought that makes for a really interesting sort of game where I don't care at all about the story, but I'm still sort of interested in meeting different characters and seeing how they fight and what they do and how they interact with the main character. So it's like um, tutoring a, a player in an RPG, in an MMO. Like, yeah, and you know, you get immediate bonuses because you get the morale boost, and you know, they go, "Oh, great! I'm glad I didn't screw up" or something like that. Um, but on the other hand, you know, it's it's you get the long term bonus of you are tutoring another player, basically, because like there are other characters who, in the fiction of the game, are really good players that will like, you know, you don't have to tell them to do stuff. Like if they see your aggro get high, they'll be like, "You want me to switch?" Uh, you know, you, you, like there's a character. <coughs> excuse me, early on, who it's like, hey, switch with me. And she's like, ah, I don't really want to. And unless you build up your relationship with that character and encourage her to do the right things, she'll just, you'll be like getting smashed and you won't be able to recharge MP. And you'll be like, hey, switch. And she'll be like, eh. Then you can get killed. So it's it's pretty neat. Um, so there's another, it's, it's it, there's like a meta layer to the mechanic. More so yeah. than just like directing them. It's like you have to actually build your relationships and stuff. Yeah, and, you know, there are lots of... There's there's so many, like, systems in it where it's a little overwhelming. Like, there's just so much going on. There's, like, guild quests, people's relationships, messaging, messaging people, skilling up vendors. Like, this is... It's... So, it, it at first, I'll... To sum it up, I'll basically say that at first it seemed like a really crappy knockoff anime game. Uh, and while the translation will definitely give you that indication, the game itself actually has a lot of meat to it. And I don't know how I'll feel about it when I finish it, but... So far, I'm actually having some fun with it, and it's it's definitely novel in a lot of ways. Good. Cool. All right. All right. Well, I think we have some listener mail to get to, and then Stephen and I are going to argue. So let's pull up the listener mail. Shut up, you. Hey, guess what I started doing thanks to Stephen, playing Diablo on remote play. There you go. Let me know when you uh, play. I'll uh, I'll hop on with you. Okay, I'm playing right right now, but we got a podcast, man. Okay, so our first uh, listener mail comes from Coffs v Capcom. I TOF versus Capcom. TOF versus Capcom. Okay, TOF versus Capcom. He writes into the music show. Get it right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, so here's a question. Are there any old games or sections of old games that you felt were too ambitious for the graphics technology at the time or would just be very cool set-piece moments with modern graphics? Off the top of my head, the opera scene in Final Fantasy VI, power-ups of the Massamoon and Chrono Trigger being more than the sword spinning in midair. Guess I was just easily impressed as a child, plus Frog's theme playing helped. The first crossing the bridge in the original FF uh, in the original Final Fantasy, dragon transformations in Breath of Fire. So what do you guys think? Are there anything... Is there anything that you think was held back by technology? Because I, reading this question, I almost go with the memory is more important than the technology behind it. So one of my favorite moments in RPGs was in Chrono Cross when you get to uh, the Dead Sea and just how creepy that was. And you were actually – you were seeing something from the original Chrono Trigger just done in a different way in Chrono Cross, a new graphics engine, and it looked different – but I'm almost like that memory, the the still painting of that is so burned into my mind that I almost don't want to see it any other way. You know, it's it's like when George Lucas goes back and changes Star Wars and adds in like little graphical touches and things. That's not what has the emotional moment for me. What really does is the memory more than anything else. Does, does that make sense to you guys? Yeah, I. It's that's that's a really good question. I think because there is there is definitely um. A point where I think 
there's too much visually. Like sometimes, what what you see is different than what you may have expected. Like you have a certain sense of anticipation leading up to a moment in a game, or uh, it, it. I don't know. It's kind of tough to 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 verbalize because in a lot of games imagination especially back when graphics were not as advanced as they are today i think your imagination contributes a lot to the impact of moments Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like with like you said with uh frog doing the masamune thing i think that's that was super cool because you got those slightly different animations just like the the impact of it was so much greater because you were like holy crap like that's a new thing look at him slicing that mountain in half that's amazing but with a, a current game i don't know if it would be as impressive if if in battles in Chrono Trigger, on like a, if there was a PS4 version, if he was flipping around doing crazy attacks in battle, for that cutscene to come up, you would just be like, oh, he's doing another crazy attack. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I know that's kind of, it's, it's a hard, it's a weird comparison to make, but I think that the, the decreased graphical fidelity of a lot of classic games is important, at least to my memories of them. Like, I don't know how I'd feel today. Um, it, I'm trying to think of a game that, that, is, is uh, something that would may have been better and gra- and increased graphical fidelity. And the one that's coming to mind is Lufia 2. There is a scene in the beginning of Lufia 1 where these four characters, the, the uh, I forget what, if they have a specific name, um, th- these four characters that later on have um, descendants that end up being the main characters of Lufia 1, uh, those characters, the the heroes, form the basis of the party for Lufia 2. So Lufia 2 is a prequel, and it's it's really interesting because... As you get through the game, you see this iconic moment that was at the beginning of Lufia 1, and you understand in context why it happens. Um, they're basically on a floating island, and it's falling apart, and there's a really touching moment between the two main characters. And I think that may have been represented really well. If it was acted well, um, that scene could be really, really cool and powerful on, on current-gen hardware. But, uh, man, I think I think a lot of the time, the the feelings that I have are linked to that precise moment when I saw it. Um, whether it's a combination of just nostalgia or me being younger or my imagination taking over, I can't say. So I can't really give you a good answer one way or another if if higher fidelity would make things better or not. I mm-hmm. think things just are what they are. So I can't think of a lot of examples of things that I would rather see in higher depth. Steven? Is Steven there? Did I not realize that he like went to the bathroom or something? Oh, yeah, he may very well have. Okay, well, I... So. I whoops. Uh yeah, I kind of agree with you, Derek, because I'm kind of like, you know, there's that uh, Final Fantasy VI when it was remade on the PlayStation 1. They actually have a cutscene uh, that plays out the opera scene from Final Fantasy VI. And, I, and it looks it, ugly. Yeah, it, I, it has no emotional impact for me. I think it really comes down to how did you experience it the first time? What is the memory of that moment? Because anytime somebody screws with that memory a little bit... It, it almost we, – we have an adverse reaction to it. We back off from it and we go, wait a minute. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And so yeah, I, I think sometimes less is more, um, especially when it comes to important story moments in RPGs. And again, I can't say how much of this is just pure nostalgia. But like to bring it up, Trails in the Sky is a great example. It's a game that has a very low-fidelity graphical presentation. But every time you see something happen that it's kind of – outside of the confines of the regular animations, if that makes sense, like things that, that wouldn't happen in a battle or just walking around the field. Like if you see a character get stabbed and like do a backflip or something, you're like, holy crap, like that's a really important thing to happen because it wouldn't normally happen in the game otherwise. So for it to happen in this cutscene is like extra exciting or 
again, it has more of an impact. So uh, I forgot the point I was trying to make, Rob. Help me out here. <laughs> I uh, think more impact when there are cool graphics in the cutscenes as opposed to now where it seems like it's more likely that, you know, everything is done in engine. So it doesn't have as much of an impact. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think that was a cool question, but I, for me, it, it really comes down to how did I experience it the first time, and what's the memory to me? And I, I that's fair. I, I think if I saw the opera scene in Final Fantasy X's graphics, maybe I would have liked it as much. But I also might have been older. You know, there, there's also something about when it comes up in your life. There's a lot of factors that contribute to the creation of a memory and why it's so important to you. So I, I don't know. That that's a hard one. Like, hmm. Good question, though. Good question. Uh, now we've got a question from Grain of Grain of a River. Grain of a River. Okay, I'm or, really I'm really bad with that. With this. I, I really am. Okay. Well, I'm you know sorry. what? I, I I have to admit when we we, we that he was one of the listeners. He slash she uh, is one of the listeners of the music show, and we thanked everyone who listened at the end of the, the music of the year show. And I had to actually re-record a section because I missaid like five names, and I actually put Grain of a River. Grain of a River. <laughs> uh, so. So this is a long question, but I'm going to use the short version of it. Um, this is a very open question that will require some narrowing down. Do you think storytelling in video games has reached a point where it can be favorably compared with other mediums in terms of depth and, uh, depth and complexity of the plot? I will let somebody else answer that e- first. Wait, so... I do? Sorry, say it again. I, I, Derek can still go first. I just, I guess okay. I... Sort of misunderstood the okay. Do you think storytelling in video games has reached a point where it can be favorably compared with other mediums in terms of depth and complexity of plot? Have we reached it, a, Have we reached that point? I think yes, but not in uh, most one-off games. I think the the few games that have reached that and and like Xeno Gears and the Xeno series in general, uh, maybe not Xeno Blade as much. Uh, but Xenogears particularly and Xenosaga, I think, have gotten close to that just because they're so spanning. They're, they're very sweeping narratives that have a lot of world building. I think world building is the key. Um, if there's, if there's going to be anything that's going to arrive, rival something like a novel, it needs to be probably an established series that has a really dense world where you get to see things happening in different parts of the world, either at the same time or from different perspectives. Um, maybe Suikoden is close. I think, again, I'm going to bring it up, Trails in the Sky has the the Kiseki series is about to release its seventh title. So, and not and that doesn't count Nayuta no Kiseki, which is like a spinoff that's unrelated. But Sen no Kiseki 2 is releasing in Japan in, in September. That's seven games in the same world with a lot of the same cast members. And each each game is just taking place in a different part of that same world. So there's a lot of political complexity and stuff that you would only understand if you had seen or if, if you had seen them played the games. Um, so I think that that's the only way that games can reach that level. Maybe, or maybe not the only way I don't, I don't want to be like, Oh, it's impossible otherwise. But I think novels succeed because they are so dense and because they tend to span such a, either a long period of time or go, it has a, um, they have a, a wider variety of locations than a lot of games do. So world building, I think, is essential to creating a novel or, or a, a narrative experience on par with a novel. See, I and, actually have to disagree with that. I, I agree world building is important, but I think that only really considers thick epic fantasy novels. 
you know, a, a few one-offs I'd say right off the top of my head, any of Yasumi Matsuno's games, Final Fantasy twelve only takes place in a tiny portion of the world, but you get a sense that there's a much bigger world there. Final Fantasy Tactics. Um, Tactics the, la- the, la- the Last of Us, for example. There are a lot of stories where I actually think, in terms of a short novel, the things they don't tell you are arguably more important than all of the things they do enumerate to you. The Last of Us, there's a lot that goes unsaid between Joel and Ellie, and I think that's what makes it a good story versus, like, you know, another game where it would be like, I'm sad because this happened. Yes, that is very sad. That's that's where a lot of games are at. I do agree with you there. I don't think length and the, the, the breadth of the series or going to multiple parts of the world are necessary conditions. They certainly definitely help towards it. I agree with you there. But I think... Stories that take place in a very compartmentalized world are something, A, I have more appreciation for as I've gotten older. It used to be that I only wanted to read the big epic fantasy that told me every single detail of its history. Now I sort of appreciate a story that approaches, you know, a, a humanity or a human condition or the way a person interacts with another person as my favorite kind of stories because those those have narrative depth in terms of the the characters and how they interact in the believability, you know, in, in a number of different ways where it doesn't need to tell you, well, this is this continent and this continent's over here. And we know all of these people and all of these factions. It's sort of the Skyrim syndrome of Skyrim has a ton of world in it. There's, you know, there's, there's these 15 different zillion different continents with all of their own histories that are richly detailed. And yet I still couldn't tell you anything about the world in Skyrim mm-hmm. versus, you know, uh, you know, we'll take, for example, uh, you know, Final Fantasy Tactics. I could tell you about the history of various parts of that world, all these different factions. And it's, it, it comes to, down to how the story is told, which is where I do agree with you that whatever story you're going to tell, you need to tell it in, a, in the method best suited for it. So I guess the short answer to the question is, yes, I think games absolutely have reached that point a while ago. Yeah. Uh, where they can rival the kind of depth you find in a novel. Because I think also a, wholesale saying that novels have this or any other medium has fantastic storylines. There are plenty of trash novels out there and plenty of trashy Hollywood films with stupid plots. Mm-hmm. Just like in the games industry, we have, you know, you have your Asami Matsuno games, you have your elaborately written Gone Home style games, and then you have Call of Duty. I appreciate that, Stephen. I think it's I think it's good that that you brought that up because it's easy to take a question like that at face value. And I think I my answer was short sighted in retrospect. So I appreciate that perspective. And I think you're right, actually, on all those points. So. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, I kind of had to develop my answer a little bit too. I think a good story is a good story, and you know, I, I tend to read a lot of big fantasy epics as I look back on my library wall right now. And what I've noticed is. You know, I like it when a, when a world is fully fleshed out, but then I also like it, as Stephen was saying, if the world is just fleshed out enough for me to really like it. So, like, I'm a big uh, Mark Lawrence fan. I know a lot of people don't like him, and he's kind of fun to hate on. But his broken empire world is almost ethereal in the things that he's not telling you. He's just giving you enough information to set the stage. The important part of that world is the characters. Meanwhile, Brandon Sanderson's novels, he kind of has a tendency to over-world build to the point where his characters kind of get pushed backwards and i don't enjoy his writing quite as much as i thought i would because i'm i'm finding i'm more of a character person um looking at my wall i'm getting into the uh the powder mage trilogy right now that's the combination of both it has a really strong world and really strong characters so i don't think you you need one or the other i mean the the last of us that world is 
told to you just enough to make it so that the character's struggle is important. So world building isn't necessary, but where I wanted to go with this conversation a little bit was the things that only video games can do, and the way that a narrative can be told in a video game. When I play Mass Effect or any Bioware RPG, their world building is incredible. I mean, they they are building these big, elaborate worlds, and there's tons and tons of characters with real depth. I mean, Morden was so awesome in Mass Effect. He's just a great character. But what... but what, it, it wrong. <laughs> what interests me about Mass Effect is my role in that world, is my ability to interact with that world. And then I think about narrative in other games that I really like. Obviously, I'm going to bring up the Souls series. I'm sorry, Derek. That story is being told. Of a... Sorry, that story is being told to you by your observations of the world. It's not telling you outright such and such happened ten years ago, and that led to this, which led to this, and then all of these things happened. You're piecing that world together. So, I think yes, video games can have the the narrative of a movie or TV show or a novel. That's not the question for me. The question for me always comes back to how can games tell their narrative differently? And I think the way that you can interact and have player agency in a world or the way that they can hide bits of the world or that you have to observe in order to see things. I think Dishonored was great about that, learning about that world by reading about it, by observing, by kind of being a voyeur in that world. That was that, really that was that's really actually cool stuff. One of the strengths, I think, and again, I hate to always bring up, but The Last of Us, like, if you stop and listen to the roving bands of people that you're going to start murdering, yeah, uh, you know, the, you get a little more sense of like the sort of uncomfortable tension of murdering all these people. Is that like they talk like, and you'll get like, you know, you don't get explanations of like who they're talking about, who their boss is, or whatever. But you know, they're all talking, and that observing is a great way to world build. Yeah, and I think that unfortunately, game developers have kind of. They've been focusing on world building for the sake of world building. Like Kingdoms of Amalur had, you know, R.A. Salvatore worked on it. It had this huge, amazing lore. And golly, I couldn't tell you a damn thing that happened in that game. Like I did, there were no characters I cared about. There was there was nothing to that world that I cared about. But they spent all this time world building, but it wasn't interesting. I think what it comes down to is. You need there's narrative and plot, and you need to have both in order to, or maybe just focus on on one. I don't know, but yeah, sure, video games can definitely be up there in terms of narrative structure. We're there. I, I don't think that that's the question. My idea is how can a video game tell its story differently? You know, what is it about Silent Hill Two that has stuck with me almost 15 years after I played that game? Why does that game still come up in the back of my mind over and over again with how it tells its narrative? Why is that the one that I, I always focus in on? Or Shadow of the Colossus. Why is that so impactful for me? I mean, the world building in Shadow of the Colossus is minimal, but the emotional connection about what you're doing and about how it shows you what you're doing rather than tells you, that's the really important stuff. And so I, I think, you know, just as Steven said, there are trashy video game stories. There's trashy novel stories. It's all about that emotional connection that you make. And replaying Shadow of the Colossus showed me just how special a video game connection can make by what it doesn't tell you. And I really like that. I actually, you know... I like as your I, answer. I like your answer, too. I, I, you know, to sum it up with an incredibly cliched statement, I agree with the Shakespeare statement, brevity is the soul of wit. 
Brevity can also be the soul of a good story. Length is not an indicator of how invested you become in a story, no matter what it is. Yeah, no, it's you know, true. There, are, there. Are, look at the look at the opening ten minutes of Up. Oh my God! No, don't make me cry. No, stop that. Like that's ten no. minutes, and there is no dialogue in that. Look at the opening ten minutes of Wally. Like, well, you know, let's just quote Pixar movies. Let's just reference <laughs> Pixar movies, but because they get you know, well, that's the thing is, you know, you you don't need to tell me what happened at Minas Tirith sixty generations ago before the first age. Just make me care about what's happening there right now. Yeah, and and that's not to say that that stuff isn't good. It can be. Like, you know, I was kind of bagging on Brandon Sanderson a little bit. I started his uh, Stormlight Archive, which he has two books released, and they're both a thousand pages. And getting through the first one was kind of a slog because he spent like 300 or 400 pages establishing the world. Then when the characters started to take center stage, I really became interested because these were characters, interesting characters in an interesting world. That's what made it so special for me. So either, you know, make the world building something that I have to take a part of, like you're not telling me history, I have to actively look for it, or make interesting characters. I think that those are kind of the, the two things that I really like. I don't know. Yeah, no, I agree. I, you know, you get balances of each. Like, you know, you get your Skyrims versus your, you know, uh, uh, Final Fantasy VII. You know, there's... Skyrim is invested in building a giant world, not necessarily in attaching you to any of the characters in that world. Final mm-hmm. Fantasy VII is very, in the anime style, you know, aimed at making you care about the struggles of a relatively small group of characters who are in that world. Okay. Good question. Good question. Thank you for that. Uh, so last question we have here, and this one is is kind of an interesting one. Uh, you know, kind of... I would say challenging me in a positive way, which I really like. Oh, uh, is this is this the um, how excited are we for Final Fantasy Explorers question? Because I am really excited for it. No, I didn't. Where was that question? I missed that. Oh, it was in my heart. Oh, okay. I am really excited for that game, too. Okay. I got that so, question, too. From Mac Gamer. Over the last several years, I've seen gamers and some critics becoming hypercritical, a.k.a. nitpicking. I went back and listened to episode 78 in your discussion of Final Fantasy X. Full disclosure, I have not completed Final Fantasy X. I've gotten about five hours into the HD collection. And I found Rob's critique of the more flat story beats to be valid, but a bit extraneous. The individual moments in a narrative, particularly a more uh, forward-moving narrative like Final Fantasy X, are in service to the greater arc and are composed in a way to say that the story can reach its uh, denouement. Good word. Uh, so then he kind of like says at the end, uh, would you have noticed the more ludicrous elements of Final Fantasy X's plot had it not been for people like Noah Antweiler of the Spooting Experiment and his videos four years ago? Uh, I wouldn't have. See, I kind of did. Uh, there were, I felt some moments in Final Fantasy X, and I think it had to do with my age more than anything else. I was playing that game, I was in 10th grade, so it's like the beginning of cynicism for children. And there were moments in Final Fantasy X that I did eye-roll. It wasn't just the laughing scene. It's the fact that Yuna gets kidnapped every other five minutes, and there's whole sections of that game that really do feel like this feels like padding. I, I don't know why this section is in the game. It, it really has no relevance. Why the hell are we not sending Seymour over and over and over? It, I, I do agree with his overall statement, though. I do think critics have gotten hyper-critical. I will agree with that. I think that we we have a tendency, and I I will definitely put myself out there. But I did notice some of these things way back when. Like, I I remember rolling my eyes. Steven, I know you love it. I remember rolling my eyes at Final Fantasy IX when it just went off the deep end. Like, that whole last disc, I was just like, what is going on here? so you mean your eyes rolled back into your head with joy? No. 
I, I think that that game's story gets a little out of control, and I've said that before a million times. I don't need to restate it. But, no, I, I would say that I notice these things. Do I have a tendency to dwell on them as a critic? Probably. And if I was reviewing Final Fantasy X... I would talk about its amazing battle system, and then I would mention that its story, while it does have some pretty obnoxious anime-style moments, it was one of the first games to be fully voiced, so you have to give it a little bit of leeway there. And also, the ending of that game is phenomenal. Like, I would still talk about the awesome parts of that game. It That's is- actually what he was asking, though, is, you know, forgive me for cutting you no, off, go ahead, but go ahead. I just... You know, that's what he was asking. You know, the individual story beats aren't as important because they're in service to the arc of that game's story, which is undoubtedly, in my opinion, its greatest strength other than its great combat system and awesome music. Like, individually, I don't like many of Ten's characters. I don't like their designs. But I appreciate what they do within that narrative. And the fact is, is I was moved by the ending of Ten. Like, that is a a game that legitimately delivers on a theme of self-sacrifice for, you know, the greater good. Yeah, you know, no, like I would, even, I would even though the you know the immediate consequences are that they're going to stop the ch- cycle of sacrifices, the game is still very much about making sacrifices for what you believe in, and for it to end that way is fantastic in Final Fantasy X's ending sucks. <laughs> but I, but I will say that it's I wouldn't ignore the pieces that do take away, and I, and I would agree. I, I think most of the characters in that game are very disposable, and I, I think that that's a problem, and. Some of the story beats are very obnoxious to me, and they don't serve the greater purpose. You know, the 17th time that Yuna gets kidnapped, that isn't serving the the story. Even the laughing scene, that is serving the story. And yeah, it's (laughs) it's stupidly awkward, but you know, it, it, it makes sense in the narrative. My problems with that game's story are just the absolute absolute ludicrous behavior of the characters at times and why it isn't a huge problem is because it doesn't directly impact the story i, I know steven mentioned a couple uh minutes ago that he wasn't a big fan of walking dead tv show my problem with the walking dead D- tv show is that characters behave stupidly and it does affect the narrative like people behave just borderline just what are you even thinking and then when they get killed i'm just looking at the tv going well of course that was going to happen like that's it dumb. happened because the plot said so that yeah like exactly the plot dictates the character's behavior not the character's behavior dictating the plot yes there are moments in the walking dead tv show where characters it, it's like all of a sudden their character completely changes in service of the plot i don't feel any of that really happens in a game like final fantasy 10 but there were moments where i'm like seriously would you just kill the main antagonist please Please just do it. Like, what are you doing here? And and yeah, that's kind of the anime tropey stuff. That's okay. But I think it is fair to nitpick on it. It is fair to nitpick on... Uh, you know, we've talked about Dark Knight Rises a million times. It was on again today. That movie has significant problems. Overall, it is a good film. I really like it. But there are moments in that movie that if an editor had gotten a hold of them or if they had changed slightly... Just as we said before, elevating a piece of of art, that would have maybe taken that movie from a 7 or an 8 to the Dark Knight levels of 10. I think it is fair to point out when things don't gel. I think that's very fair. I I think the the important thing to remember is that you can be very nitpicky and critical and still appreciate and enjoy something for what merits it does have. Oh, I... That's... like, and that's sort of the journey of critiquing things is at first you're like too soft because you love this game and you don't want to call out its faults. 
Then you you make up for it and you, you rail everything and then you're like, this game sucks and it has no merit. And then you're like, you know what? You know, not to ring my own bell here, but like with Sword Art Online, I'm like, you know what? There are parts of this game that are insufferable. And then, but you know what? There are things that I'm getting out of this that I enjoy. Yeah. And I, I think that's what you have to be able to do. You have to be critical of anything you love because you can't expect it to improve unless you're challenging it. Like, you know, I want a better Final Fantasy. So I say I like 10. I love I love the, the arc of the storyline. But the individual moments are a little silly, and I could have an even more memorable experience if I held them to a higher standard. Yeah, I mean, I I was pretty nitpicky on Dark Souls 2 this year. I mean, I, I was one of the reviewers that was like, well, you know, it's not, it's not quite... because it's boring! I think that's a little harsh, but... Uh, it's, 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 it's... Never mind, we'll talk uh, about we'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, I, I think Dark Souls 2 is a good game. You know, it's probably going to be my favorite game of the year, unless Wasteland 2 blows my socks off, which it very well might. But it's still a game I really enjoyed, but I was... You know, I, I was asking myself, am I being overly nitpicky with this game? And what I kind of think is so funny is that the reviewers for that game that gave it like 9.5s and 10s, they then came out months later and said, you know, it isn't as good as the first one. I'm like, well, then why did you review it higher than the first one? Like, I knew when I was playing that game that it wasn't as good as as the first Dark Souls. It's doing some things better, but overall it wasn't quite as good. So yeah, I was being nitpicky on it. There are sections of that game that are kind of a mess. I mean, the, the hitboxes on that game are terrible on some of the enemies. Is that me nitpicking? No, I really don't think it is, because I, I do feel like it was an inferior product in some ways. Derek, what That's do you fair. think? I don't know. <laughs> I, th- I think you kind of covered all of it. Uh, we criticize because we want things to improve, right? So, like, I think it's fair for him to to call me out a little bit and say, you know, don't lose sight of it. I do love Final Fantasy X. I do. I, that battle system is incredible. They totally earn that ending. Like that ending is freaking awesome, and I just so pissed at Final Fantasy X too for ruining it. But like, there are moments in that game that we're just like, ah. Man, you know, really? Like the, the like Blitzball, seriously. Blitzball should have been an amazing side quest. Yeah. All they had to do was make it real time. <laughs> okay, so that takes care of our listener questions. Thank you everybody for contributing and make sure to keep going with that. So Steven, you're not excited for Bloodborne. No, I'm not. And I hate uh, it. That makes two of us. <laughs> but I I'm not, not excited in the way Derek is not excited. I am going to buy it and will probably think it's great. I, however, have no hype for it because, you know what, they can show me all the magic weapons and this is how we're tweaking this element that was in Dark Souls. They can show me that all they want. You know what, it's pretty, it's got great art style, it is all of the things that I am sure I will love when it comes out. But right now, they have not shown me something that I haven't seen before. They're showing me modifications to things I have seen before. And that's not to their fault, because that's what this is. And again, you change the juxtaposition of elements and you could end up with a better product. Uh, you know, Final Fantasy IX is mostly stuff from earlier Final Fantasies, but the way they're arranged in that game is fantastic. Uh, with some of its own stuff. But, you know, so I'm going to get Bloodborne the day it comes out. I'm probably going to love it. But I just, I'm, I can't get excited about it because I'm like, yeah, I've played this style of game. I know what I'm going to get. I think that's very fair. And, uh, you know, we were kind of arguing back and forth, but I totally agree and see where you're coming from because I, I remember way back when Dark Souls 1 was announced and uh, Zach, who was on this show, he was like, you know, aren't you going to be excited if they release a Dark Souls game, if this becomes a franchise? And I said, you know, 
I don't want them to dilute it. I don't want it to become I, – I, I want it to be special. I want it to be a big event when one of these games comes out. And, you know, they could have announced Bloodborne last TGS. I mean, come on. That game was ready to be shown. But they obviously didn't, so they didn't take away from Dark Souls 2. And it does worry me a little bit. You know, I don't want From Software driving this franchise or this type of game into the ground like they've done with Armored Core. Well, you got to remember this is From Software. That's kind of what they do. I know, and it, it does frustrate me a little bit. I'm excited by what I've seen of Bloodborne, but, I, Stephen, I totally get where you're coming from. And I think developers have to be careful. Like, they, they can't... You know, as, uh, we have two Assassin's Creed games coming out this year, for God's sake. Like, at but some, one of them lets you play as the bad guy, who I think actually is no longer a bad guy, but he's still trained as an assassin, so... That, which is interesting, because when I asked the guy, have you guys ever thought about making a game with Templars, he was like, oh, no, 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 we've never thought about that. And I'm like, oh, come on, <laughs> jerks. Uh, but, uh, you know, don't dilute your franchises too much. And I, I actually think, you know, for all the crap I give Square Enix, with every Final Fantasy game, they do basically flip the damn table over and say nothing is sacred we're gonna try all sorts of different stuff and then everyone says that the series hasn't been good since whichever one you started with and you know yeah, basically go. basically i mean well i don't think that's fair for me because i kind of started with final fantasy 6 and i love 6 i love 7 hate 8 like 9 like 10 parts of 12 i really like and then there's 13 so i mean i i i tend to like well it, and I, there's 13 2 and 13 3 and 14 Whatever. Well, 14. All, all those ones you're leaving off. 14's good. I like 14. Uh, but I, I think that they have to be, you know, be careful with your franchises, guys. Like, you know, don't keep... How do you keep them new and fresh? And I think that they're doing enough in Bloodborne to keep it fresh for me. But at some point, you know, hey, people still buy Madden. So maybe I'm just completely off on this whole thing. But, you know, how do you keep these things interesting and keep people coming back over and over again without diluting them? I don't know. I think developers uh, have to be careful of that. In my case, you call the series Kingdom Hearts. Yeah, you you do seem to... I, I was going to... That was going to be my call out to you is like, well, you know... I don't. I'm not really seeing anything new for Kingdom Hearts three, but you seem to be uh, seem to be excited for that. There's like 30 seconds of video from it. That's probably not even going to be in it's the, the game. It's the same damn game, Stephen. Resident Evil three and two are the same damn game as the first one. And you love them. Yeah, because they're awesome. Okay. All right. All right. All right. All right. Oh boy. Okay. So Bloodborne looks exciting. That was one of the big games at Gamescom. So Derek, do you have some news for us? Because I feel like we haven't been on the show for we haven't been on the air for a long time. So there's probably oh, been a so lot of news. All right. So speaking of things that aren't Bloodborne, um, I'm sorry, Derek. No, it's, I'm it, sorry. it's okay. It's not okay, but it's okay. It's not alright <laughs> at all. Uh, no, it's not alright. No, we haven't we haven't done news in quite a while. Um, there haven't been a lot of really huge announcements since Gamescom. Gamescom, if anything. Um, Dragon Quest IV came out for iOS. <clears throat> um, I think it's. I think Square Enix is probably going to bring the rest of that trilogy over here on iOS. Um, I don't really care. I'm kind of tired of iOS ports of stuff anyway. Um, Dragon Quest IV, V, and VI are on DS as well. So, uh, but if you have an iPhone, you haven't played it yet. Dragon Quest IV is a pretty good game. Uh, I wouldn't say it's the very best Dragon Quest, but it's definitely worth playing. Four, four five. Four, five, and six are kind of hard to find on DS, aren't they? Like they're not available for download or anything. Uh, yeah, they're a little bit. I think five is the hardest to find. Yeah, I think that's the uh, one that like I found it for seventy bucks and was like, whoa. You know, I actually changed my tune. Oh, you're talking about Dragon Quest. Never mind. 
<laughs> Sorry, I no, I, I was not trying to be snarky. I legitimately thought you were talking about Final Fantasy because they just announced the port of five or whatever to. I thought you were I, old devices. I was seriously not trying to be snarky. That was the I, ultimate I, I actually have, I've actually been told by my roommates that I'm required to start liking Dragon Quest, so maybe I'll. Play Ladies it. and gentlemen, that was the ultimate troll. That was not, not a, a troll. That, that was a total, total accident. <laughs> I seriously was about to say that I changed my tune on the Final Fantasy VI iOS port after I played it on Mike's phone. But it's not, not let's let's give Dragon Quest its time in the sun. Still, still crap. But yeah, so uh, Dragon Quest Four is out. I think it's like sixteen bucks or something like that, which is a little pricey, um, especially for an iOS game. But again, we've had this conversation. Uh, you you have to consider how much you're getting out of that for that price. It's still cheaper than it would be if you were to buy it brand new on DS. So I mean, and if you, you know. don't want, and if you complain about the proliferation of mobile games, you can't get mad when Square Enix charges you a premium price for premium experience. So that's the thing that happens. And speaking of 3DS games, um, Etrian Odyssey 2 is getting a remake. It was Woo-hoo! teased a little while back. Yeah, it's pretty exciting, mostly because it has Yuzo Koshiro's music. It was a there was a teaser site that went up a while back on Atlas Atlas's uh, domain that just had like a giant tree, and most people guessed that it was going to be an Etrian Odyssey 2 remake. So it is. It's called Etrian Odyssey 2 Untold: The Night of Fafnir. Like the first Etrian Odyssey Untold, this one has a, a more story centric approach. So it's got, like, the classic Etrian Odyssey first-person dungeon-crawling, map-drawing, monster-battling gameplay, but it has an actual narrative this time around, just like Etrian Odyssey Untold. Um, it's got, a like, five preset characters that have personalities and uh, dialogue and yada, yada, yada. The, the main thing is that the, the main character this time around has a transformation mechanic where he can go Super Saiyan. Uh, I don't really know a lot of details about it, but it ties into the narrative, so... The uh, the first Etrian Odyssey Untold, I think, did a really good job of making that series more accessible. And I didn't finish it, but I really want to go back to it now that the second one's been announced. And the music is consistently freaking awesome yeah, in the Etrian Odyssey series. Two and three have my favorite soundtracks in the series. Three is my favorite game in the series. So I'm assuming we're going to get a remake of that, and that pleases me. Probably. And Etrian Odyssey 4 was made for 3DS, so they'll probably finish this this trilogy, original trilogy, by remaking the third one. And they did say that um, another game in the series is in the future, but they, they right now they're just focusing on this one. So, so yeah. Like the classic dungeon crawlers. The, seri- the series is good. I think it's, um, it's one that a lot of people don't really think of when it comes to great portable RPGs, but I think they're really good. They're, they can be kind of inaccessible, but these remakes are, are alleviating a lot of that difficulty. So Certainly. the second one um, should be out. Localization is pretty likely on that one, and I would imagine we'd see it early next year, uh, maybe like first, second quarter. So, um, Other pretty big news, Obsidian acquired the Pathfinder license. So they haven't uh, announced any games other than a digital version of the Pathfinder adventure card game for one to four players. It's going to be a deck-building RPG, uh, rather a deck-building game with RPG elements. And uh, there's already a tabletop version that exists, so if you're a fan of that, you'll probably like the digital version. Um, and they'll probably make some games in the future since they got the license, why wouldn't they? Uh, I don't really have any experience with Pathfinder myself. I've played, like, two one-off tabletop campaigns of it. It seems like it's a good rival to D&D in terms of complexity and lore and all that stuff. So if you're a fan of Western RPGs and adventure games, you'll probably like Pathfinder stuff when it exists in the Great. future. Hooray! And we have been seeing a lot of media lately for Final Fantasy Explorers. That's the four-player... Um, I don't know how I would describe it. It's, it's like a co-op RPG 
similar. It's it's Square Enix's Final Fantasy answer to Monster Hunter, basically. Um, they did do what was it, Lord of Vermilion, or no, that's uh, Lord of Arcana. That was yeah. Square Enix did on the Vita back when, but it didn't perform well uh, in any sense of the the word. It wasn't really very fun. Yeah, it wasn't great. It didn't sell super well. So this time they're taking a Final Fantasy approach to it. So it's that four-player game where you can play as classic Final Fantasy jobs. Um, it just recently got a release date, which is the reason why I'm bringing it up. It's coming out December in Japan on the uh, 18th. So a localization hasn't been announced yet, but it is pretty likely, I would say. Uh, I think that would make a really great co-op game. And they said that they are going to be adding additional jobs to it beyond like the typical Final Fantasy ones. But recently they announced uh, Paladin Hunter, Time Mage, and Ninja. So that'll... Yeah, Time Mage. That's going to be know, cool. Time Mage is cool. I can see them adding a Time Mage to Final Fantasy XIV, incidentally. That would be such a cool like way to break the mold of character classes. Yeah. I, so, I'm excited for Explorers. I, I think that could be really, really cool. If it's more Diablo than Monster Hunter, I'll be into it. Yeah, yeah. well, with the job system, I mean, that's that's compelling. Yeah, there's a lot to go into there, and job system as we've found out recently it can't fix every every possible game but damn our job system's addicting so yeah so that's really all i have for news i i didn't really see a lot of huge news stories breaking outside of some of the new media that we got at gamescom um i wish i could talk about persona 4 arena ultimax because it's a persona game but we don't cover it uh one little piece of news is that wasteland 2 has a september 19th release date so, so it's going to be out of the pre, out of early access and into full, full on release. I believe so, yeah. And I, that game is pretty impressive. They released a major patch for it. They overhauled a lot of stuff. It plays a lot better uh, in terms of frame rate. They cleaned up the UI a little bit, and they added a mini map, which was kind of necessary. Like when you're in these big open environments, and there was no map. It was kind of like, what are you guys doing? But that game is looking really, really good. I mean, that I think that that's going to be my divinity. Like that'll be the game that I enjoy a hell of a lot more for, than Divinity. That I just like that setting more. I like the gameplay style a little bit more. Uh, that game's looking really, really good. I played Divinity for five and a half hours last night. It was fantastic. Yeah, you and I need to jump online, grab some beer, and just uh, make fun of me as I just screw that game up left and right. I'm or... free. You won't screw it up. Uh, I oh. think I will. I think as oh. I hear it in the background, I think. I, <laughs> I was going to say we could uh, we could all hop on Diablo together, but the servers are not cross-platform, are they? No, they're not, and that's that's a real shame. But the, the PC version and console version play so differently. They, yeah, so, that, you wouldn't want it. Like people playing certain classes and certain platforms would be inherently better. Yeah, and like some of the skills are a little bit different on console, so. Which doctor is which doctor is still document. the best? Which doctor is still the best? Well, you've got spider jars all day, so I don't see why it wouldn't be. Yeah, the survivability on the Witch Doctor kind of went through the roof. But anywho, so uh, thanks again, everybody, for... Uh, Survival pretty good. I just, uh, uh, just stop. Here we go. Uh, so thank you, everybody, for listening to the show. As always, be sure to give us reviews on iTunes. We just hit 78 reviews. I'd love to give that up to, like, 80 or 90 by the end of the year. Uh, or 100. Or 100. Keep giving us uh, listener questions. I think that that's an awesome thing that we want to continue to do, and you guys have really stepped up to the plate on that one, so thank you very much there. For Derek and Steven, thanks a lot, and we'll see you all later.